three. And we're back. Yes, another episode of The Wages of Cinema. I was uh, counting down as if we were on TV. Someday, Jack. Oh, maybe someday we'll be on TV. Anyway. <laughs> How are you doing, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Wages of Cinema podcast. I we'll am... wait for your response. Wait, don't don't cut me off. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You, anyway, you braggart. It's good to hear from you again. It's good to hear from you as well. I am Jack. And I'm Andrew, as I mentioned earlier. Did you mention that earlier? Maybe. Alright, well, just in case Who's you didn't... Who's keeping track? Well, sometimes you have to remind the people. Uh, so we're back once again. Uh, actually, this is our first episode of the new year. Uh, we po- I posted an episode uh, that was really our our first episode online of the new year but we recorded that as our last episode so as if i'm getting any more confusing you can let me know first episode of the new year yeah yay <laughs> um <laughs> i was just making a unless you're chinese okay chinese new year well chinese new year is 31st right i think it's in february I believe it's the end of January. I'm sure. Well, the Lunar New Year changes from from time to time. It's not constant. I'm sure some. Point. I'm sure some viewer out there will correct us on that. Um, but in the meantime, uh, how's how's your uh, how's it been since I last uh, since we last podcasted? It's you? been good. Kind of easy. Uh, you know, just uh, not too bad, not too terrible. Mm. It's okay. Well, that's, that's. I can't think of anything specific. Your 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 time good. to quote George Carlin, your your time was not unwell. No, it was it, not. It was moderately neato. Right. What about you? <laughs> um, my time was uh spent okay. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of some of the things that I did. Uh, I went bowling for the first time in a while. Oh, I wanted to go bowling during Christmas vacation, but I didn't get to. Oh no, that would be something fun to do. Yeah. Yeah, I. I, I didn't do that bad, although it was a weird situation because I was with people who uh, put up bumpers in their lane, and <laughs> it, it don't. It's a long story, but okay. the point is, um, I, I actually did pretty well, but not. But despite the bumpers, I only had to use the bumper like once or twice, really. Right, like most of my bowling, you know, I try to do it right down the middle, even though I'm not terribly good at it. Okay. So, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. There was something else that I wanted to mention, uh, and now I'm I'm trying to think. I'm hoping I'm not drawing a blank here. It might be, um, but I know it, actually most of my time was spent uh, uh, reading a couple of books. Uh, one of them will be I'll be I want to be talking about later in the podcast. Um, I'm not quite sure if the other podcast uh, I'll save for the other book as well, but. I'll mention just in passing. I've been reading through uh, most of Charlie Chaplin's autobiography. Oh, good. And uh, yeah, very interesting stuff in that book. Um, I mean, if you're looking for <clears throat> certain like personal uh, details, he he'll go into de- really big depth on some things, and then he'll gloss over some things just completely. Um, yeah. And it's uh, but like he, how I glossed over my uh, my week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your your autobiography of the week was terrible. Thumbs yeah. down. <laughs> Speaking of books, I ordered two of 
uh, Roger Ebert's two other movie review collections. Your uh-huh. movie sucks and an unendurable experience of in- infinite length. Hmm. I think I'm mis- mispronouncing the last one. But I got both of them. I'm going to start reading them soon. Yes, and actually speaking of Roger Ebert, uh, now I don't know um, if we should, uh, at some point if we should talk about this. Maybe, actually, you know what? As the first movie to talk about that we've watched since... Yeah, let's talk uh, we got about that. one that we saw together last yes. week. We watched... Life Itself. Yeah, the documentary about Roger Ebert. Yeah. We all sat in the same place. The newspaper guys here, the druggies in the middle, the sorority staff at the very end of the bar... Roger has always been attracted to weird types. I mean, you should see some of the women that he's hauled into O'Rourke's over the years. You know. Back in the old days, Roger had probably the worst taste in women of any man I've ever known. They were either gold diggers, opportunists, or psychos. Yeah, I met Roger one time with a woman that looked like a young Linda Ronstadt. And when she was gone from the table briefly, I said, who is that? And he said, uh, she's a hired lady. And I said, a hooker? And he said, now you take care of her when I leave. <laughs> and he left town and, uh, and anyway. It's not that I'd forgotten that I'd seen it, but I, just in a flash, it came to me that I had watched it again with you. Yeah. And you had not seen it before. No. And it was a good way to start off the new year. Mm. You know, Roger Ebert, he's been gone for over a year. Oh, um, no, longer than that. Yeah, he, well, he passed. over a year. <laughs> yeah. But I was well, technically right. But, almost yeah. two years. Yeah, but he's been... Uh, His absence has been very deeply felt for me. Uh, you know, just like, you know, there was a time period where I would, you know, a new movie come out and he would be the first person I would go to for a review. Yeah. And... He, uh, there's just so much about him I didn't know. I knew that he uh, co-wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is a movie that I di- that I discovered <laughs> last year and, and went crazy for. It's a it's a nice, that, notorious movie. Yeah, and uh, but I didn't know uh, I didn't know a lot about his personal life, how he was an alcoholic, uh, about his uh, his time working with Gene Siskel. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> All, all hanging out in bars and all mm-hmm. that stuff, uh, but yeah, he lived a crazy, awesome life. Yeah, and then you know, in the last several years of his life, he uh, there was a problem with his thyroid, and his cancer kind of reemerged, and one thing led to another, uh, botched surgeries, and you know, he lost his jaw, and so he couldn't speak for the last several years of his life. Yeah. And that was the thing that got to me in the, in the uh, documentary. They don't just talk about Roger Ebert's life. They have footage of him in his I, right. in the hospital well, talking to the director mm-hmm. of the film. Well, the thing uh, was... You know, they're filming him for the documentary, but yeah, he's very much... Yeah, they were doing this documentary before he died. Like, he was actively participating in it. And the director, uh, this guy Steve James, uh, previously made this movie Hoop Dreams, which Ebert you know, called, like, the best movie of the 1990s. So Hmm. he already had this guy, like, pegged. But what was interesting to me was at one point, I think he told Steve James, you know, this isn't just your movie. Yeah. Which was kind of a moment where you kind of almost think, like, in any other other case, uh, that might almost sound selfish, 
a little bit, but yeah. but you know the way that Roger Ebert meant it was, I only have so much time. Yeah, and there is that time. There is that moment during the movie where Roger Ebert tells him, "It's very likely that I will not live to see this movie." Yeah, and all the while he's. The way they did the surgery is they removed his jaw, but his lower half of his face is still there, kind of like this this flap that moves whenever he moves his head. And uh, I don't I I don't want to. He, he basically couldn't even eat. Like he he you know he had to take food in through you know a tube. Yeah. And it almost sounds weird to say it, but there's a lot of the time a lot of the time he looks like he kind of has a permanent smile. Yes. You know, and I think I read somewhere that, in a weird way, he didn't mind his appearance that much because he's uh, he was a big fan of Phantom of the Opera, so he sort of saw that he <laughs> that he became like the Phantom. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Would have been a good way to go out. Yes, him in like a, you know, in uh, what is it, like an auditorium that the Phantom was in, or an opera house, an opera house, the Phantom of the Opera, Jack. Well, an auditorium the Phantom opera. of the auditorium <laughs> in a high school. That's the much lamer version. That's like the the discount version where that we couldn't get an opera house, Dave. We had to get an auditorium. In in this the high school, really? Yeah. <laughs> but sorry, but the point is. The movie for me, what was so great about it, and it's one of my favorite movies of that I saw in 2014. Um, I mean, I knew a good lot about some of the Roger Ebert stuff. Some of it was uh, just because you know I've been a fan for so long and knew about the rivalry with him and Gene Siskel, and also in the last years of, years of his life, as they mentioned in the movie. Uh, his blog became a real cornerstone of his writing as well. Like he almost kind of had the best work of his career doing that blog, mm-hmm. and you know, in that that's where he revealed that he was an alcoholic to the public. He really dug deep into you know a lot of philosophical and deep thoughts about religion and philosophy of yeah, life remember... and topics of just anything that popped into his head. You know, that gave him. And that's one of the great things with the internet and blogging is if you are a good writer, your your writing will find an audience. Yeah, and in a way that's uh, you know it's hopeful for a lot of people. Uh, but the the thing that gets to me about documentaries like this is like, man, I gotta start getting my life together and doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> because by you know by the time Roger Ebert was my age, he was already working in a newspaper and doing stuff, and I'm like, man, I gotta. I gotta get it together. Yeah, but he was also, you know, he also got his PhD, and the the movie doesn't show this, but he also went to uh, like South Africa or something for a time, like in the sixties, and huh. uh, you know, so it was a different time period. I think like if you were like a hardcore academic type person, you really went for it whole hog like he did. Yeah, um, and I think. And what's interesting, I don't know if the movie showed this that much. I think the version we watched on CNN, I, I'm still not sure if they edited anything out from the theatrical version because it had been you know several months since I saw that. But uh, you know, the thing was with Roger Ebert that was interesting is a lot of people who are film critics today, they set out to just be a film critic. They set out because they just 
love movies, they want to write about them. That didn't happen with Roger Ebert. Uh, he just set out because he wanted to be a writer. He actually wanted to be a novelist. Uh, hmm. In his autobiography, like the actual book, he writes a lot about how he wanted to be a novelist. Like, this guy... Uh, uh, it, 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 there were times I got confused because it has the same name, but this guy, Thomas Wolfe. Yeah. But not to be confused with Tom Wolfe, who wrote yeah. the right stuff. Two different wolves. Um, but the point is, but he, he set out to be a journalist, not Yeah, he a became critic. a journalist, and he kind of fell into the movie critic job because his paper needed a, a movie critic. Yeah. And it was like uh, everybody else was writing under the same pen name because they didn't have anybody. Mm -hmm. So it was whoever had seen the movie that week. And so uh, he fell into it. Yes. And uh, the rest is history, to yeah. coin a phrase. Yes, but... Well, it impressed me about the movies again. I know all this. I knew a lot of stuff about Roger Ebert, but still, the movie, it it, it, it the cliche, the cliche. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It is <laughs> two thumbs up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but no. But a very it, touching story. It, it, a fantastic. It, it, it's just a fully made. It's a fully realized, fully emotional movie, and it's about a lot of different things. Like it's yeah. about it's about a man at the end of his life, uh, about looking back at that life. Yeah, uh, how him looking back at his life and us looking back at how he's affected us, uh, even if it's in a very small way. And uh, that's yeah, a fantastic. It's a fantastic movie. You should uh, go check it out, everybody. Yes, absolutely. Go check out Life Itself, and you know, and also if you haven't, check out. You know Roger Ebert and uh, Gene Siskel reviews because yeah, there's still are a bunch fun. on YouTube. So uh, go go look on YouTube for some of the good ones. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, um, so all right, let's. Uh, so yeah, go check out Life itself. Watch Roger Ebert and uh, Gene Siskel reviews on YouTube. You can still find them. They have great arguments. And they make some great points about a lot of movies that you probably barely even remember. So yeah. Go. Now, just what, like a side thing, um, when we were watching documentary, I got the sense you had had you ever seen the outtakes? No, I from never the show. Seen the outtakes. From yeah, the show. wasn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. They have outtakes uh, from when Siskel and Ebert used to do their show. We won't like, tell you much about them because you should see the movie. Yes. Uh, so don't worry. Uh, so go check them out. But yes. Or else. That is that threat? Yes. <laughs> oh, you love threatening. Okay. So let's talk about another movie you've seen this week. These okay. past two weeks. Okay, let's let's get right into it. Um Alright, the first movie I will talk about. Um and this was the very last movie I saw last year. I literally saw it on uh New Year's Eve All right. during the day. Uh was a movie called The Imitation Game. Right, no. the one about Alan Turing. Alan Turing. Could machines ever think as human beings do? Most people say not. You're not most people. Well, the problem is you're asking a stupid question. I am? Of course machines can't think as people do. A machine is different from a person. They think differently. The interesting question is, just because something uh, thinks differently from you, does that mean it's not thinking? Will we allow for humans to have such divergences from one another? 
You like strawberries, I hate ice skating. You cry at sad films, I am allergic to pollen. What is the point of, of, of different tastes, different preferences, if not to say that our brains work differently, that we think differently? And if we could say that about one another, then why can't we say the same thing for brains built of copper and wire, steel? And that's this big paper you wrote. What's it called? The Imitation Game. Right, that's, that's what it's about. Would you like to play? Yes. One of the pioneers of computer technology, back when computers had to fit inside a gymnasium. Yes, exactly. And when building a computer was akin to, like, I don't know, building, like, a, a, any other piece of machinery, like, in the industrial age, like building a, like, a tank or something. It's Let's, let's give people but, a little perspective of what we're talking about. Computers, yes. desktop computers are a relatively new thing. They came around in... Uh, the 80s. So when you talk about computers back in the 1940s, what you're talking about are these massive boxes that are larger than a refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And not just one, you're talking about several dozen, mm -hmm. which are linked together and do very simple mathematic com mathematical commands. To give you an idea of... No, not very simple mathematical things, but... It all... Go ahead, Jack. Yeah, no, no, no. But just to give you an idea, though, of the time frame... Uh, dealing with this technology, there's a point where Alan Turing mentions just the word digital. And it almost <laughs> is like, what is that word? In the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, what the movie is about, uh, now if you don't know Alan Turing, he, and there's probably good reason for that, because for quite a while he was actually uh, kind of like an, a figure that was not really supposed to be known who he was, because he was... Yes, because all this, all the work he was doing was to break the German Enigma code. Exactly. Which is super secret, top secret. Yes, so you uh, know so you know a little bit about this. I know, Yeah, I know a little bit about <clears throat> the history, the history of, it. of it. But also, he was homosexual. Yes, he was. And uh, now he is played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes, the most British name in movies today. Not bad. Yes. Uh, but so well, tell us about the movie. Well, yes. Um, well, as I said, the movie takes place um, primarily during uh, you know World War II. Uh, Alan Turing is brought in uh, by uh, I forget the actor's name. Oh, this is killing me. Michael Caine. Unfortunately, no. It, he would have been a nice guy in this, but I think he also was he's in half the movies ever made. So yes, I but, thought it was a safe. No, place. but um, basically he's recruited by. Uh, Anyone who watches Game of Thrones, uh, Tywin Lannister is uh, basically the guy. You would know him if you saw him. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> you know, he basically brings in Alan Turing. And Alan Turing's just a mathematician. He's kind of uh, one of these guys who's often off in his own head because uh, he has basically Asperger's or autism. You, you know, take your pick. Kind of an Asperger's autism Combo. They're not the same thing, but he's not. Yeah. To, to, I know they're not the same thing, but it's like, it's a person who has he can function and you know talk to people, but he doesn't really catch like all of, like the signals that a lot of us just naturally get when we talk to someone in a conversation. Right. There's something just kind of off a little bit about him, and yet he can also be very 
sarcastic and kind of the funny thing is is that our like movie starts person. well the movie starts and you know Benedict Cumberbatch has uh well actually I'll mention just a little bit of the plot just to get out of the way so Benedict Cumberbatch is brought in by MI6 uh because Enigma as you said the German uh code machine is you know making it so that uh you know British the British army is getting killed left and right. It's right at the 1940 and 1941, right when the war was at its most brutal against uh, Europe. And, uh, and you know, so Alan Turing has to figure out, okay, how am I going to break this code? I mean, there are ways that you can break codes, but you have to have a very specific mindset. But Alan Turing doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to just break codes. He wants to create an actual machine to fight a machine. Uh, so part of the movie is about just his struggle to make this machine and the fact that MI6 keeps wanting results, uh, you know, because again, people are dying, you know, minute after minute on the British side. And, you know, he has, Alan Turing has a team with him that can uh, crack codes, but Alan Turing's, you know, really the best of them. And yet he's spending all this time making this supercomputer. Uh, he nicknames him Christopher. <laughs> Uh, that's one of his little eccentricities, which actually becomes actually got heartbreaking. But that's a, a point I don't want to really reveal. Right. Uh, so that's part of it. And then, again, without saying too much, finally his machine works. And yet, it's not a spoiler if it's history, Jack. No, it's not a spoiler. But no, it actually, yeah, it's not a spoiler. But what, at the end of the movie, the movie kind of goes. The point through is, the British were in World War Two. Yes, that's true. And. Uh, <laughs> they just fall. They just go short of like showing Churchill. Like it's yeah. kind of that kind of movie. <laughs> I think they already showed him in Glorious Bastards, so they kind of thought like, all right, that's yeah. enough of that. Um, but the movie actually, so the core is set during World War II, uh, but we also get flashbacks going back to uh, Turing's adolescence uh, at like a preparatory school, where he you know meets someone who is like his only friend. He's again, cause he's such like a head case. He's really picked on by other kids, except for this one guy, uh, who's also named Christopher. Uh, oh, okay. So you can figure out what happens there. And then he the movie is brain alive in the computer. <laughs> not quite. Uh, God, no, now you're making me uh, think about something really heartbreaking in the movie, but I want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> Then so it really is in three parts. This movie, there's that part. It also jumps back to Alan Turing as a young person, and then it goes ahead to 1951 when Alan Turing is uh, like they, the cops kind of search his house for what you know. It's kind of a mystery. You know, there aren't any records about this guy. This one cop is you know, unsure, or Bobby, I should have called him a Bobby. They're kind of wondering, like, who is this guy? There are no records on Alan Turing. You know, he's, what, well, I don't want to say anything. He's a ghost. But, yes, he's a, yeah, pretty much. Um, so is this, so is it supposed to be a drama? Is it, it's is a it drama. A thriller? It's is a it? lot of those, well, it's a drama. It's a, it's a spy movie in large part. Again, because you're dealing with MI6, you're dealing with, you know, is this person a Russian spy, possibly? Is there this or that? But it's also largely, and this is the movie's real strength, is that it's a character study. It's really about this guy, Alan Turing. Um, slightly in the, in the way that uh, um, 
A Beautiful Mind was about John Nash. Right. Uh, only this movie, I felt, in a way, might have actually been stronger than A Beautiful Mind in the way that it uh, shows this person and all, all of his faults. Like, you don't, you know, it's... Alan Turing's not an easy guy to like. He's, you know, very irascible. And the thing is that having Benedict Cumberbatch there, it was an interesting choice because at first, um, I'm a big fan of Sherlock. I don't know if you've seen any of the the BBC did their Sherlock series in the past few years with Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it's a really, really great series. And uh, Martin Freeman is uh, Watson in it. And, uh, but long story short, the same type of characteristics that I saw him playing in Sherlock, I saw at first in Alan Turing as well. This guy who is, you know, his brain, he almost, his brain moves like a computer. I know a lot of, you know, human human beings, our brains are computers, kind of. Um, yeah. <laughs> I kind of stumbled into that, didn't I? Um but the point is, just the way that he interacts with people, the way that Benedict Cumberbatch plays both Sherlock and Alan Turing, at first, I was wondering, are you going to be doing the same performance the same way? Are you kind of having this guy who's Asperger-y or, you know, not really all together in it? Um, I'm listening, yeah. But, as the movie went on, he made the character his own. He... There's just a lot of pain inside of this guy, and he, you know, again, you know, because he was a homosexual, that was a crime in Britain. Um, <clears throat> he married a woman, uh, played by Keira Knightley in the movie, and she's actually really good too. Uh, oh, that's good. Which is surprising, you know, like not surprising. Like she's been, you know, a pretty good actress well, I mean, for a while. But we know her from most as parts of the Caribbean. Where, yeah, and yeah, in those she, movies, you know, she's kind of the weak link. Yeah. I mean, by that, but you know, considering everything she's done, it's probably because of you know this this movie shows and also of the movies well so yeah well this movie is the kind of proof where if you have good material then you can get a really good performance and she you instead know, of just squid faced men mm-hmm. well yeah actually I shouldn't say she plays Alan Turing's wife she plays uh, his fiance like they become pretty close. Um, and there are also issues with her character. Like, she's kind of plucked out to join this kind of group that Alan Turing has, right. uh, even though she's the one girl. And it's like, oh, girl, you can't you can't be here, code-breaking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm doing an exaggeration, but, yeah, but you get what I mean. Um, so the movie has a lot of these complex issues, and it's, at the core you have Benedict Cumberbatch giving what, what might be my, my favorite leading male performance of this year. Like, he's excellent in the movie. He's, like, and he's really, and he's heartbreaking. He makes Alan Turing so, like, a much of an emotional person, even though he's someone who's completely driven by his intellect. Like, it's kind of like the the head and the heart are kind of having that battle. And in the midst, of course, is World War II and trying to stop the Nazis. And so you have these two really strong elements that work together, um, in a sense, also a little bit too like that. I don't know if you'd ever seen the Social Network. No. Oh, okay. Well, I, I don't know if I. Well, for those who have seen it, um, there are also kind of things that reminded me of Mark Zuckerberg when I watched uh, uh, Cumberbatch's Alan Turing. Like this guy who's kind of like, you know, he's a real 
I'm, I'm kind of doing a bad imitation of the sort of guy I'm looking like, but someone who... Also, you cannot see Jack right now, so it doesn't make no, any difference. No, 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 you can't see me through your speakers. So, um, but the, the point is, game. really good, really, really good movie. Um, Martin it, Freeman, take notice. It's better than Battle of the Five Armies, probably. <laughs> are, we, are we still back to that? Why not? <laughs> yeah, in our last podcast, it we, we kind of... Sherlock. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess Sherlock and Watson each have their big movies this holiday season, and... Uh, well, one of them trounced everything. Yes. Although Cumberbatch actually was in The Hobbit, though. Yeah, well... Which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but the point is, The Imitation Game... You know, go see it. Good movie to take, like, with your parents to see. Like, it's, you know, that kind of... It's probably going to get a bunch of award nominations. Uh, Cumberbatch will probably get a Best Actor nod, and he really deserves it. Like, this is the kind of performance that, you know, like, he, he you know, he was he was a con, of course, you know, in Star Trek a couple years back. Um, I don't know if that quite launched his career, per se. Like, he was you know, very noticeable in the movie because he was yeah. the villain. But I feel like his performance as Alan Turing is the one that's really going to launch him, hopefully. Well, let's hope so. I mean, he's, he's been good and everything, even in even in Star Trek Into Darkness. He was good. Despite, despite the, movie. the movie around him. But uh, let's hope that he that he does even better than we've seen him now. Yes, yeah, so... So let's get on to me. Okay. All right, you. here's a movie I've seen before, but I wanted to watch again for some reason. I watched Scott Pilgrim vs. The World again. Okay. Uh, not I don't want to say too much because... Uh, it, except for the fact that it was criminally overlooked at release, and that it's probably the best adaptation I've ever seen on screen. Of Of, of anything. What? Of of comic books or of or of novels because I think really yes I that, mean is, is it the best statement. comic book movie or is it the best like novel <clears throat> movie no but it's the way that an adaptation should be done well well I, it's uh, okay. let's uh we'll keep in mind that well again Scott, you read Scott, the well you read the books yeah so the, you also have that perspective yeah but here's the thing this they started writing the movie long before the graphic novel was finished oh I didn't know that yeah. Uh, the the seventh the I, final I really book the came out only a few months before the movie was released. So, huh. uh, so a lot of a lot of what ended up on the pages was mm. was only in Brian Lee O'Malley's mind, and he, yeah. and he uh, gave that to the writers to figure out. And it it went two different ways. I mean, a, mm. a lot of stuff it has a lot of similarities, but they they go in two different directions. And I have a yeah, go ahead. No, no, actually... Yes, a I... question over there. You, yes. sir, right? Yes, me, me, me. I'm, I'm... What is your question? Okay, well, well, now this makes me curious, because you know, I, I really love Scott Pilgrim, too, that I think is one of the best films of just the past, like, five, it's six It's certainly years. the best, uh, um, air quotes, video game movie of all time. That and... Well, that yeah, that, that for sure. Edge of Tomorrow comes close. Well, I haven't um, seen that, so well, I'll have to discount it. We will have it to does, watch it. It might that as well soon. not exist right now. Well, well, we'll <laughs> soon correct that. But the point is, um, now I I don't know if I ever told you this. I saw the movie. You saw it in a in, in a, a in a kind of early screening. Yeah, you mentioned that when we saw it. It had a different ending than what the uh, the actual movie had. Like, um, uh, it's been several years now. But the point, uh, so I can kind yeah, of say you can go it. ahead. It, Scott it Pilgrim in the version I saw actually winds up with uh, 
Knives, Knives Chow. Chow. Now you're um, sure about that because you're... I am. I am totally sure. I was with someone else who saw the movie, and they said it was Knives Chow. Edgar Wright has said in, uh, in the audio commentary for the movie that originally it was Knives Chow. And what I'm wondering is, in the comic book, uh, who's you end up with? Well, that would be a spoiler, Jack. <laughs> Uh, I, I made like a why I ought to... Why don't you read some more books sometime? Eh, books. Eh. But no. It, <laughs> but no, so but when, when you say though the best adaptation, it's because of how cap- a filmmaker they, takes the medium of what that was written in and makes it work completely cinematically. Yes, and they capture the same spirit. <clears throat> Whereas if if you had read if you had read the graphic novel and watched the movie, you would see yes, this is exactly what it should have been. If you go back, if you go even if you've just seen the movie, then you read the graphic novel, okay. you will see that they have this. You know, they're both dealing with the same themes about Scott Pilgrim earning you know self earn, not just earning love but earning self respect. Mm-hmm. And well, you also about, have uh... about relationships and about the way people see themselves in relationships and, and dealing with and taking responsibility for for your relationships C- kind of in the way that um high fidelity did hmm. except this is for people of the 2000s yeah that's a good way of putting it too i, I think of that yeah high fidelity certainly had that element as well i mean like yeah, the multiple girlfriends like 20 years after high and... fidelity we have the same situation with scott pilgrim uh, dealing with his girlfriend's exes. Yeah. Only this time, Scott Pilgrim, you could say, is a bit more. He's kind of a little bit more in like the hipster culture in a way, or the well, movie kind of makes fun of that. The movie, the movie. Uh, I I don't want to. It, it certainly par. It certainly parodies hipster hipster culture. There's a lot of the, the first album was out. better than the first album. Yes. <laughs> you should you should market your music to deaf people. But uh, but the point is though Edgar Wright, you know he he so knocked it out of the park with that movie. Yeah, he knocked it out of the park, and all, and very few and not enough people saw it. Mm. So yeah, it's so, still so, an awesome movie when you get it on DVD. So go please ahead, go people. see it. Please go see it. You know let's let's celebrate the genius that is Edgar Wright. Right. All right. Um. Now uh, should I talk about a new movie? Yeah. Now? Go ahead. Okay. Your turn. <clears throat> well, my next one I'd like to talk about is um, talking, you know, continuing on the thread of uh, real people with uh, movies now made after them is uh, the movie Unbroken. Now, right. I don't know if you'd heard of this movie. It's I've a heard new of the movie. movie. Now, we actually, and it's fun, and this is another movie as well, set in World War II, uh, with a, a person who had a bit of fame to him, uh, this guy named Lou Zamparelli. Yes, wow. I had heard this guy's story a long time ago. Okay. On on television. Oh, okay. And uh, he... and this guy's movie and this guy's actually been trying to get a movie made about his life for I, I'm not kidding, like going back to the 50s. Yeah, and like, not just because he wants money, but because he really deserves it. Yeah, well, well, all right. Well, I mean, whatever whatever you think about the movie, and I'll I'll get to that in a moment. Um, this guy. Basically, he he was a you know kid a, chil- a child of immigrants, uh, Italian immigrants, like real you know. If you can tell dirt. by his last name, yeah. But he um, but he becomes an Olympic athlete, a track yeah. and field star. What what is his event? 
Like well, the, he went to the uh, he went to the Olympics. Did he run? Well, is he went. He... Yeah, he's he was a runner. Right, uh, so he, he went be... to the Olympics in Berlin in 1936. Right, which is uh, and you know where Adolf Hitler was right there. Yes, he was, and um, and also at that, I think they in the movie also showed that that was where uh, Jesse Owens was a big deal. Yeah, um, I actually remember a little... weirdest Olympics in history. Not necessarily because of anything that happened, but because it was in Nazi Germany. Yeah, and 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 just as a tangent to that, I remember uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in a documentary class, and they showed us um, a movie that Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah, made she did a documentary called about the Olympiad or something. Yeah. It and was that... a big. It was a big propaganda coup for the Nazis. Oh God, it was huge, and like. The movie is ridiculous. Like the mo- but the movie Even starts. By Nazis. <laughs> well, well, the movie starts off not showing like any of the Olympics. It just shows like it almost is kind of like the prototype for what you would see now with the Olympics. Um, you know, like they have like, like promo like movies giant. or something like that. Um, like the movie starts off with basically like a, I guess it's supposed to be a German or someone like running over. This this is like, the Olympic. Olympiad. Movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just as a tangent, and then we'll get back to Unbroken. It starts off with a guy running across like mountains or something, if my memory serves me. Those Germans love their mountains. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> ten minutes of a guy like running across mountains and being like the best Olympic athlete ever, and it's basically a giant peon to uh, Nazis. Yeah. And, and the glory of the Aryan race, I guess. Uh, and yet, you know, I mean, just like with uh, Triumph of the Will, you know, there is some pretty creative filmmaking, even though it's for a very evil purpose. Using your powers for evil. But let's <laughs> okay, get but back the movie, to Unbroken. So the point is, so Louis Zamparelli, yeah, he's Olympic. He, goes to, the, he goes to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And, and then he goes to World War II. Where he's a bomb, where he's part, on a, uh, he's yeah, part he, of a bomber crew. Yeah, exactly. In the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And he gets shot down. Uh, he survives at sea for several weeks, several days. Oh, yeah, well, like more than a month, actually. Yeah, more than a month at sea. And then, that, all that only ends because the Japanese pick him up. And he becomes a prisoner of war in Japan. You basically said the plot of the movie. It's history. <laughs> it's not a spoiler. But I'm talking about it as a film. And we know the guy who was trying to make a film, so we know we, we he didn't die. That's true. But okay. that's the story. An a incredible story. Well, yeah, and it's, incredible a, it's story insane that this hadn't been made into a movie before. It is. It probably did become a movie because it's based on a book. Which that, that is has, also which true. Is, which is a bestseller. But here's the thing I want to talk about. This was directed by Angelina Jolie. Yes. So let's talk about the directing. Okay. Well, for me, I um, when it comes to this movie, I watching the movie. Here's what I thought. All right. I had this thought watching lots of the movie. Man, I really love Rescue Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Werner Herzog a few years back made a movie with Christian Bale. It's a very called similar Rescue Dawn, story, which about, was also about another prisoner of war who yeah. had, who's who's the. Who, I mean, granted, Dieter Dengler wasn't except like in the Vietnam a, a, an Olympic athlete, but he was you know a he was really an interesting talented. person. Oh yeah, very interesting person. There was like a documentary, he was a and a fiction film yeah. made about him, and you know he spent all this time in a little, prison of war camp. Yeah, there was a documentary first called "Little, little Dieter Wanted to Fly." Yeah, and about that, this guy uh, about Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. Made, and Werner Herzog dramatized his story uh-huh. in Rescue Dawn with Christian Bale. 
Yes. Which we saw together. I, that was a really... Uh, Did we see really, Rescue Dawn together? We saw Rescue Dawn in the theater together, yeah. Wow, I don't remember that. Yeah. Jeez, wow, you have a better memory for that than I do. Okay. You're right. All right. <laughs> I, I might... No, because I'm trying to remember. I saw the movie twice, but I have not... I think... Why was that, I was that also the same night we saw um, I Know Who Killed Me? No, that was the night we saw Bratz. Are you sure? Yes. All right, I got. Then you must have. Then you must have watched Rescue Dawn. But all right, the point is that film is filled with like, like there's just like a lot of passion and heart put into it. There's something really. There's really interesting. Is like shorthand for passion and heart. Yeah, and it's but it's just a really interestingly acted film. So when I watched Unbroken, I just didn't. I just didn't get that. I, I wanted to, but there was something just kind of missing. There was something that is felt it, kind of formulaic, just in the sense of a film that's telling the story. Even though, again, this guy, you know, he was this incredible, but he there was no human dimension to him as presented in the movie. So he just kind of comes off as like this almost like superhero. Who, so it, so the whole presentation is kind of flat. There's a little bit it's of a a little, flatness it's to it. It's formulaic and flat. It's a little bit formulaic and flat. I mean, now in the movie, you know, his main what happens is it's like the movie's kind of in half for the most part. I mean, there's kind of flashbacks early in the movie to his childhood and to him being, you know, getting becoming an Olympic athlete. That's really a tiny so part of the So everything before like he gets shot down most of is the a movie, flashback. Yeah, I mean, well most of the movie is Half of it is, you know, when he gets shot down and he's on the water, and then the other half is when he's in the POW camp. And we have flashbacks sprinkled in. Yeah, a little bit sprinkled in, and also so no little surprises. moments where, no, no surprises. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're you're gonna, you know, him running and him being all inspirational, Run and then forest. that kind of cut in. Yeah, it's pretty much that. It's Forrest Gump, but it really is him. Gump. Yeah, because like he starts running because he's like running away from bullies. And he runs, you know, into like, you know, a track meet going on. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh. <God. laughs> um. Now here's the thing. All right, now, the section on the water is pretty good. That's okay. actually a pretty good sequence. You know, I mean, with that, you know, again, you know, I get kind of called back to something like Castaway or something, but it's still well done. Uh, there's. A lot of tension because of, you know, again, they're trying to call, you know, down, pl- you know, call plane to get them. Uh, with uh, And they're also sharks. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're trying to eat. So there's actually some good drama there. When it's just the, the three of those guys. The drama of men just staying alive. Yeah, I mean, when you have that kind of very basic thing, that's hard to screw up. Well, and, uh, well, I don't know, because, I mean, you can get bogged down in the idea of three men just in the middle of the ocean. I mean, if you don't if you mm. don't really bring your game, I mean, you can get t- that can get tiresome. A little bit, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that seems like a, I mean, I haven't directed a film. You've directed a film, <laughs> but I mean, like I, three I people in a boat. The movie does. The movie spends just enough time with that to, okay. to make it worthwhile. Um, where it starts to kind of where it started to kind of lose me was when he gets in the POW camp and. You know, he has, like, the, um, his main opposition there is that there's this one 
guy who kind of runs the camp, and he's a total asshole. Uh, this Japanese soldier who, you know, he's the kind of guy who's like, who goes up to him, he's like, look at me, look at me. And then he hits him, he's like, why were you looking at me? And, you know, he hits him again. Stop hitting yourself. Yeah, Stop one of those kind of guys. Yourself. And I think... You build the bridge now! Yeah. <laughs> um, so, again, the filmmaking, I think, is a main part. Now, it's it's kind of a weird thing to criticize the filmmaking, because for me... Actually, like, one of the main reasons I went to see the movie was that uh, the cinematographer is Roger Deakins, who is one of, he you know, the world-class... No, I'm thinking of John Deacon from Queen. All right, never mind. No, are you sure you weren't thinking of Roger Walters? <laughs> it's possible. So who is Roger Deacon? Roger Deakins. Okay. Who is this Deakins? Fellow? Who is this man? Um, uh, he he's he's lensed uh, a lot of the a lot of really major films from the past twenty five thirty years. Uh, well, all but one or two of the Coen Brothers movies: okay. The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, right, Skyfall. Right. Um, I still have to see Skyfall. Ugh. Oh, what's wrong with you? Even Matt Rosen said he loved Skyfall. Yeah, we saw it together, and it was like, you know, Matt was like, "Well, I, I usually don't like James Bond, but that was awesome." All right, all right, but so, so, so he, he did Skyfall, he did Shawshank Redemption, he did a bunch of Coen films. Okay, he he is he is an amazing cinematographer. Like the fact that is he the fact that he doesn't have an Oscar is kind of a crime, um, but. Uh, so, you know, and he, he shot this movie. And is there so the a movie, chance of him winning an Oscar for this one in the upcoming Academy That would Awards? be, that would be interesting if he won for this one. That would be, that would be the equivalent of, like, Al Pacino winning for Scent of a Woman. It's, like, not his best work, but it's, it's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, so the movie looks fine. The movie is good to look at, but the way that it's directed, again, it's very... It hits you on the head with its message. It hits you on the head with that. This guy, I, I joked to my wife when I got out of the movie that I could have stayed home and listened to. I don't know if you heard this song from the '90s, uh, "Tub Thumping." The I might have heard it. it goes, you know, I get They're knocked down, okay, okay. I get up again. That's basically what happens in this movie. That's basically the story of Lou Zamparelli as told in Unbroken. Somebody make that montage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously... Maybe the that court, will be an Oscars montage. Yeah. I mean, the movie climaxes with him, you know, he, he has to, again, with this asshole German... No, German. Japanese uh, POW guy. Why did I say German? Um, he has to hold up, like, this giant block of wood. And if he drops it, he'll be shot. And, you he know, it's one it. of those moments that... I mean, you know, we I mentioned that this movie, you know, has been, you know, this story could have been told years ago. I almost wish this movie had been made maybe in the 50s or 60s. There would have made, like, the, the ingredients in this movie almost lend themselves to being done in, like, an old-fashioned yeah. Golden Age Hollywood thing. Whereas today, the combination of it, you know, we've seen this so many times, you know, and also... Yeah, back in the 50s it would have been fresher. Uh, yeah, it, the style would have been fresher. I mean, you could find a different take on the story. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, but, but we've seen it so many times. And yeah, that's just how it came off to me. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess credit for Angelina Jolie for you know getting this guy's story finally told. But I just wish that she had had a slightly easier hand. 
yeah. times watching it. Uh, but I mean, maybe you might like it. You know, if you if you're really interested in seeing this movie, if you want to take a movie, you know, I mentioned that you know, your parents might like Imitation Game. This would be a movie for your granddad, yeah, or grandma. Or grandma. Um, I mean, there's a lot of torture at times in this movie. I mean, there's a scene where, like, as punishment, Lou Zamparelli is like made to be punched by every prisoner in uh, the prison. Yeah. Which is, again, that's a pretty horrific sequence, and yet, not again, not about the cinematography, but the direction is, again, flat, and there's just not... The emotion just wasn't there for me. Okay. So, I see what you're talking about. So it's kind of... Uh, eh. And also, the lead right, actor well, here's, was... Here's the real funny. question. The lead actor was also a little flat, too. That might have contributed to it. I mean, he's getting praise right now. This guy, Jack O'Connell, he's kind of a new guy on the scene. But something about him was very bland as well. He was almost like... uh, It's almost like an actor who could have played Superman or something. (laughs) But not, like, in a good way. But you were about to ask me something? So, this or Battle of the Five Armies? Uh, ooh, that's a good one. Which would you rather see again? Mm. Can I say neither? No. <laughs> I guess... So are they on par with each other? I guess The Hobbit, just barely, because there was like a little more craft in that movie. Okay. For me. But again, I'm not if if you're already wanting to see him broken, I don't want to stop you. It just didn't do it for me. He's not going to stand in front of you at the theater and say. I'm not going to make you hold a giant block of wood over your head. Uh, if you drop it, you have to watch The Hobbit again. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to another yes. movie. One I saw, Star Trek Six. Ooh. The Klingon Empire has 50 years of life left to it. To offer Klingons a safe haven within Federation space is suicide. They're animals. Jim, they are dying. And you, Captain Kirk, are to be our first olive branch. Me? The galaxy stands at a crossroads. This is the Starship Enterprise. We've been ordered to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another right on the verge of peace the undiscovered country the future on the brink of war we come in peace and you blatantly defy that we haven't fired according to our data banks we have i shall blow you out of the stars I, did you mention this last time? Uh, we yeah, last time other? we talked to each other we, yeah i we were, i talked about it briefly. i think off mic we talked about it yeah, the the fact that yeah, so these these this is one of the Star Trek movies you hadn't seen. Yeah, uh, well, I've I've only seen Star Trek the so you most, skipped seen, ahead to six. I've yeah, well, here's the thing: I saw the most recent two Star Trek films, the okay. reboots. Uh, I saw I've seen Wrath of Khan. Uh, a long time ago, I saw Voyage the on. one with the whales. That's Voyage. And okay, this well, one. you know what? Actually, no. In that case. In that case, you're okay. Like, 
Maybe sometimes. Yeah. yeah, it's it. I know that that the thing is the even numbered Star Treks are the are the good ones. Search for Spock is actually really good. That one is underrated. I okay. would say, and even Star Trek the Motion Picture is actually not bad. It's just kind of bloated in parts. Right. Like that one is actually a good Star Trek episode that is just happens to be kind of movie length. Um. The Star Trek Five is the one that's not good, right. and I won't get into the next generation let's, movies because we'll be here all night. All right, so Star Trek Six. I saw this because it was on the Ten Minutes About Your Favorite Movie podcast. Oh, of and course. now uh, so do... I, you know I, I just see everything. And here's the thing that I here's the best thing about Star Trek Six. Mm. It is a it is a bridge between the original Star Trek and the Next Generation series. Yes. So it's actually telling a story that needs to be told. Well, it was made in 1991. Actually, this was the this was like the first. I think I might actually saw this in the theater when it came out too. Like I have little memory of seeing it except that I think I think as a kid I remembered the. Like, they were in, like, snow at one point? Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I saw you the movie You may be then. thinking about The Empire Strikes Back. No, I think I'm but here, But it's a story that needs to be told. It's about, you know, it's about the Klingon Empire falling apart. And, yeah. And and it, which, is, which is huge, because, you know, in Star Trek, the Klingons were enemies of the Federation. You know, there was kind of an uneasy peace between them. And then the next generation, they're more or less incorporated. So you have to tell a story about how the, Kl- how the Klingons became part of the Federation. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know anything about Star Trek. I didn't. I barely watched any episodes. I haven't seen much. Uh, but that's still an interesting story, knowing what I know about Star Trek. The very the bare minimum. So it, it's a it's an interesting story. Yeah. How do we how do we get these people who have been so close to to fighting us? How do we bring? How do we make peace with them and bring them in? And yeah, well, as the and, th- and that's the main conflict be- yeah. because there are people who are very willing to do this, people who are the, who don't want to do this, and people who really don't. want The conflict, to do this. the conflict to me, I always remember the bit where uh, um, there, there's just they just had this meeting early on in the movie, and uh, you know Kirk has been vouched for, yeah, and he's like, "You vouched for me," and they have this moment, <laughs> Spock and Kirk. Yeah, and Spock and Kirk have this moment because they're arguing about, you know, the Klingons, and and Spock basically says, they're dying, Jim. And Kirk says, let them die. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of so a... So that kind of bottles it's it a bit down. Of a, it's a bit of a corny line, but still, it's... it's it's yeah. kind of, it has its it works it has Kirk. meaning. Yeah. I mean... Uh, but And here's the, the strange thing. So they... Uh, you know they're, they're trying to get this whole peace process done. There's this big conspiracy. I'm not going to tell you too much, but all the people who are in on the conspiracy, trying to prevent this thing from happening, are people who will later be fighting each other if they succeed. Yes. Which is crazy, because they're all like, okay, we all don't want this to happen. Let's make this not happen, and then we'll just fight each other later, and we'll get it done it, the way we need has, to get it done. It has it's the a, kind it's a of strange, twisted logic. It does, but at the same time, you gotta think that the people who were writing this movie, they, they were likely writing it thinking about, well, what if this kind of thing were happening in you know the real world? If you had these well, two kind of warring have, nations, it, it does have having this kind of conflict because this is happen- th- This movie was made just around the time that the Cold War ended. Yeah, that's a good point. You okay. know, uh, it, it, it's a perfect parallel, more or less. Uh, yeah. 
you know, the United States and yeah, the, the Russia Union. is dying. That's a good point. Yeah, and the same thing all basically happened to Russia. It fell apart. Uh, but, uh, but and it's also and it's also a good mystery. This like something happens in the middle of the movie, and Spock and the rest of the Enterprise crew have to figure out what happened. Yes, and it's. And they and it's a very interesting mystery to try to solve. Yeah. I remember in the Red Letter Media review of Star Trek Generation, <laughs> he's like, and they, and they solved a mystery that Scooby Doo couldn't solve. <laughs> and, and he's right; it was a decent yeah. mystery that you wouldn't have a cartoon, basically. So I love Star Trek Six. I think it's the best Star Trek movie I've ever seen. Really, I like it better than Wrath of Khan. Andrew. Mainly because Wrath of Khan stole most of its best lines from Moby Dick. So, yeah, Star Trek VI is my favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, I have to see the fourth one again because I saw that a long time ago and I remember it being funny, but uh, I don't remember. Four is a hoot. Four is just fun. Like, yeah, that was the one seemed, where. It seemed like a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that was basically. Learn Nimoy directed that one. I think he also directed Search for Spock as well. And I think he made Voyage Home. He's just like. We need to get out there on Earth. We need to actually have... In the past. Yeah, in the past. <laughs> of course, I should mention that. That's 1986. we, we got to save the whales, um, people. Yes, yeah, save the whales. Um, so let's go on to you. I've said enough about tra- Star Trek Six. Go ahead. All right. Um, the next movie I will talk about is... Uh, I'll, I'll just talk briefly about a movie that I saw again, which was Inherent Vice. Uh, yes, now we I talked, talked about, about this, this at length a few podcasts ago. Yes, a little so bit. So why did you see it again? Well, I mean, well, first of all, I did really enjoy the movie very much. And when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson, I will see his movies more than once. Just in part because I'm a fan, but also, and especially in this case, I feel like there's more I can get out of it seeing it again. I, I can see a little bit more of the richness of the filmmaking. I can see more of... Uh, what was going on between characters that, you know, when I'm watching the film the first time, I'm just taking it all in, and it's a little bit of an overwhelming experience, especially if you have someone who is, you know, this good a filmmaker. uh, But in the case of Inherent Vice, the plot is, you know, kind of convoluted, and it's you you really have to concentrate, kind of follow it. And ultimately... And it was interesting seeing the movie again because I saw it with someone who hadn't seen it. And he was kind of like, what was the point of that character doing that? Like, what was <laughs> what did that, what did that mean to anything? And I tried to explain to him, but I realized that ultimately when it comes to a movie like Inherent Vice, it has a lot of MacGuffins. It has a lot of things that ultimately don't really lead anywhere. And that's that, not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, no. you and I have read Roger Ebert's Little Movie Guide. Exactly. And there's this law of economy of characters where no character is meaningless. Huh. And we've come to expect that as moviegoers. Like, this mm-hmm. guy is in the movie, and we haven't heard from him in a while. We're going to come back to him in some sort of big way. This movie has a lot of that. A lot of that. I mean, the now, thing... but you said there are a lot of characters you didn't know the po- that your friend didn't know the point of. Were there were there just pointless characters that were there to throw us off? There, I don't know exactly to to say that fairly because I think that the the way that the the movie was written, I mean, it was based on a book by Thomas Pynchon, and then you know, it was adapted by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, so he did the screenplay. Yes, he did the screen. Well, okay. Paul, well, Thomas Pynchon didn't do the screenplay. It was, I know. I'm, I'm saying whatever Anderson 
face. Thank you. Yeah. All right. No, no awkwardness there. Um. <laughs> so Paul Thomas Anderson. He he adapted did this the movie, and he kind of he must have recognized that. Pinchon was putting a lot of intentional red herrings at times. He's putting characters give a lot of exposition, and yet it's an interesting case because the movie is ultimately more about the characters, even though it's a plot-driven movie. And yet, seeing it again, I, I this time I could kind of watch the movie and focus a little bit more on the story and really get what it was going for. Um, you know, it's in, again, 1970, it's filled with lots of kind of conspiracy and drugs and, uh, heroin deals and, uh, um, heroin, crazy... the drug and, of choice of the 1970s. Yeah, and there's also a lot of absurd stuff. There's a lot of outrageous things. Oh, we have Nazis in this one. I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> no, you did not mention that. Yeah, well, there are Nazi bikers. Uh, at one point, uh, <laughs> there's a scene where Joaquin Phoenix sees a character... It, with a swastika tattooed on his face, and he asks this other guy, "Is that a swastika?" Uh, no, that's not a swastika. That's a symbol of peace. <laughs> like the the way that yeah. You know, fucking, um, but the point <laughs> is, seeing the movie again, I liked it a lot more. I got even more out of it than I did the first time. Um, I I got more out of the richness of the characters. I think there's a lot of texture to this movie that. I'm not going to say it requires a second viewing. I think seeing it once, if you just see it once and realize, eh, that's, that's fine, then so that's no, fine. So no cinema immersion tank for you? No five-day marathon? Not right now. Maybe someday. Maybe right. someday I could see myself going back and really getting even more. Because the thing is, ultimately the movie's a comedy. It's kind of like an absurd, farcical thing. Um... You know, in the vein of Big Lebowski. But I, I was thinking Big Lebowski as you were talking. It, yeah, very bit. Although, just to cap this off before we move on, like Paul Thomas Anderson in an interview actually said, when he read the book, he said, oh, this is the Big Lebowski. I gotta try to put that movie out of my mind while I make this. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to reference that way too much. And he made it his own, even though it has kind of that feel of just really crazy characters all around this guy who's, you know, just smoking a lot of dope and, you know, kind of getting paranoid. All right. Okay, so, so let's you, move so on. Let me just get to one thing before I we move on to my next one. Is, is Joaquin Phoenix done being crazy, and is he back on track? It would appear so. I mean, he's now been in uh, four movies uh, since uh, I'm not here. Okay. Or I'm still here, I should say. Um... I think you were thinking, I'm not there. I know. It's, it's hard. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, well, they both are posters of, you know, you have Bob Dylan, who's played by Kate Blanchett. Yeah. You know, he's all, like, kind of like that. And then Joaquin Phoenix with his giant beard and glasses. Right. They're both very, no, it, I think he's back on track to just being, you know, a good old regular actor. And this is one of his best performances, too. Like, he's having a lot of fun with this movie. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear it. For some reason, I'm invested in actors' well-being. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, but, he admitted but, that. But, well, but the thing is, just seeing him come back from "I'm still here," it, it makes me feel good. Did you think that he was actually going I, crazy? I, no, I like. You just no, thought I, he was I heard being indulgent. The, I heard about the whole fiasco, and I'm like, oh man, this this seems terrible. 
so just to know that he's like, all right, I'm done with that. I'm go- now. I'm doing stuff. Well, uh, that... yeah. Well, what he well what he tried to do is that he thought like, well, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen is having a really great career, you know, playing these characters and really committing to them, and you know, not breaking character for long stretches of time and making these really wild comedies. That's what I'm gonna do. Only <laughs> I'm gonna play quote myself. Yeah, and I'm not going to be funny. <laughs> I will say, though, now in retrospect, I went back uh, a couple weeks ago and rewatched watched uh, the interview that Letterman did with Joaquin oh. Phoenix, and that is really funny, because like Letterman... He, he's just great because he gets really quickly what Joaquin Phoenix is trying to do. But of course, it would he's be much great if David Letterman had let us in on the joke. Well, no, no, but he didn't know that Joaquin Phoenix. He didn't really know it was an act uh, while he was doing. It. Like he kind of just showed up on stage, oh. and and then Letterman had no choice. He had to kind of lampoon him and you know say things like, uh, "So, so tell us about you know when you hung out with the Unabomber." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So. All right. Let's, all right, go let's move on right along. Joaquin, good job. Uh, Interstellar. I saw. <laughs> oh, wrong movie. <laughs> I was doing the Inception. Uh, well, I'll, I'll probably, speaking I'll, I'll probably of, fully speaking that sound of later. Hans Zimmer, I was. Uh, you and I talked about this. I was really. Uh, I barely noticed soundtracks or, or, or music in movies, but this time I, I, I noticed it. Because I noticed the link between 2001 and this this soundtrack. You, you noticed it here. Let's, wow, let's... I'm I'm so surprised, Andrew. Yeah, I noticed. I didn't things. think that it was being like slammed in your eardrums. <laughs> All right, let's make it absolutely clear. Like Interstellar, I it follows the template of 2001, but it does a lot of stuff. I think it does a lot of stuff different. Well, it, it's all like. Well, let me talk about like first like the general plot because the thing is that right, Christopher yeah, Nolan Christopher Nolan is a little bit more uh, plot minded than I think than Kubrick Stanley is. Kubrick yeah, yeah that's a, the kind of an understatement so but, here it is what happens in Interstellar is that well I saw the movie let me talk about it well but I saw it too okay. <laughs> you, you explained the plot right, I'll, 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 I'll start uh, Interstellar the earth is kind of dying there are dust storms yeah crops are dying like it's, it's some untimed it's uh, it's a date in the future that's not stated. yeah an unspecified date in the future unlike 
2001. Uh, which they probably dodged a bullet with, because 2001 is now 14 years old. So, uh, yeah, so the Earth is uh, is going down the chute. Kind of slow. Yeah, well, it's because their food is running out. I mean, they don't really give a specific reason, probably because... They don't want to say it's global probably warming. climate change. Yeah, it's probably that. Everybody's but they don't been want to say it. a lot of people have been talking about how dust storms are going to happen because of climate change. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, dust storms. Matthew McConaughey's a farmer, used to be a NASA pilot. Yes, uh, and, and he has two kids that two he's kids. taking care of himself. Right, his wife is dead, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> and so what I'll happens talk, is I'll, yeah, keep but going. through through a kind of uh, chance encounter. Uh, a, a couple of series of events that lead Matthew McConaughey and his daughter to uh, the site that happens to be NASA. Yeah, they find NASA, and NASA's got this plan to uh, colonize other worlds because this wormhole has appeared out of nowhere near Saturn, which is cool, by the way. And uh, a movie with wormholes. This is one of the probably the first one I can really think of. That's probably the main. Innovation. I really, I really wanted. To say to reference two thousand one in the theater, but there were lots of people around me, and I didn't want to be. When a you jerk. say that, like reference it, do you mean like to start? Like, I wanted to doing... shout things like, "My God, it's full of stars!" <laughs> and okay, and I was like, "I'm sorry, Matt. I can't. I can't allow you to do that." <laughs> but the point is, Matthew McConaughey he gets recruited uh, by NASA to come and Michael Caine, Mike, Mike, Michael Caine. Um, he goes to, you know, bring him back. Because Michael Caine apparently was his former professor. Um, I think that's who he was. Yeah. Um, so Matthew McConaughey is trying to find these worlds that astronauts have gone to, and they're trying to find a home for humans. Yeah, and, and as the movie says, there's basically a plan A and a plan B. Uh, one plan is that they find a way that they can... Bring, bring all everybody the on Earth. From Earth. They into can take space. them through. They can take them through. I guess the wormhole somehow and bring them to this planet. Right, and that's Plan A. Plan, plan B, B is we're gonna just cut loose. Everybody on Earth dies, and we just start humanity with a bunch of fertilized eggs that we have packed on the spaceship. Now, here's the thing. My friend Adam and I we were trying to figure out what Plan A was. Because when Matthew McConaughey gets to NASA, there's a lot of information thrown at us. A Christopher Nolan movie with lots of information? You don't say. Yeah. I mean, Inception had a ton of information, but I mean, I I never felt lost in Inception. And I didn't feel lost during this. It it was just that afterwards, I was trying to figure out what what were they trying to figure out with Plan A? Because Michael Caine's trying to figure out this formula for something that will allow everybody to leave Earth. And I'm like... And and my and Adam said, okay, what was he trying to figure out? And I was like, well, it was the thing with gravity and the, the, the when the bid did. And, <laughs> well, I, and that, I was trying to figure, yeah, I don't, I'm not this sure is, what exactly. The it thing was. with this movie, and is, then I was trying to figure out the eggs. I'm like, wait, are they like, are they like embryos, or is is yeah. Anne Hathaway going to impregnate herself ten thousand times? <laughs> I could pretty much rule out number two, but I don't remember what the whole thing was with the first well, one. Come on, you wouldn't want to see that movie. Well, I would. But that's that's neither here nor there. But the point is, well, <laughs> this movie this, was not made for me. No, well, so, this movie, and I, but, and it's not a big problem. I mean, I'm I, I'm going to see this movie probably a second time, and then I'll pick up the information. Uh, but they do throw a lot of stuff in you at you, and if you miss one thing. I mean, it's not going to kill the movie, but then you'll later on you'll be scratching your head like, 
wait, what did we have to do again? And oh, you saw this movie too. I saw this movie too. This is the kind of movie that I've actually meant been meaning to see a second time. Not because I didn't think it was a great movie, but just because, again, there was so much information thrown at you. It was the kind of thing where I had all this information, and yet by the time we got to the third act, um, I was just so confused. And even though Matthew McConaughey is actually still talking, he's still explaining what's going on, and, um, you know, what where he's... There's a whole thing that happens with, you know, some of you still haven't seen it, so I won't say that, but it involves his daughter. Because him and his daughter have this kind of fight, you know, when he's about to leave. Apparently children take it really personally when you leave on Interstellar or Save the World. Yeah, you know, I'm only going to save the world. Um, (laughs) But, yeah. um, But what happens is, though, is that Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway, this team, go off to this other planet. Um, but what happens is they go on this planet and time, uh, and then I guess this kind of hooks back a little bit with Inception, uh, when it comes to, you know, the different layers of time going on. Yeah. When they go to this planet, um, what is just like an hour on this planet is actually like 15 years back on Earth. Yeah. The time, so that by the time that Matthew McConaughey, you know, gets back onto the ship after exploring this planet... Um, the guy who was left behind has aged uh, significantly, and there are all these videos showing, you know, Matthew McConaughey's kids have grown up. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you know, a, ty- a mini boyhood. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And, that and scene, you know, and he, you know. Oh, the, Matt, the, Matthew McConaughey acts his brain out. In, in this movie. In, yes, well, he, especially well, in that scene where he's watching all those videos. He well, a, he cries he has, his eyes out. Yeah, he has a <laughs> backlog of 20 years of videos only because he was away from the ship for two hours. Yes, this is a very <laughs> nice... Um, see, there are very... You know, there's so many good ideas in this movie. Yes. And there's a lot of beautiful direction, and yet I don't feel like... I feel like the script needed one more pass, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like... There were just certain things with some of the pacing where by the time it got to that third act, it was just, I kind of was feeling the length of it. You know, the movie's almost three hours long. I, I, no, no, and again, I think it's, I would say that it's a major work by Christopher Nolan. I feel like he really, you know, was very ambitious with this movie. And, you know, and he got, you know, a really strong performance from Matthew McConaughey, albeit, you know, through a lot of it, he's kind of crying. Um, there's also an actor who appears, you know, in the third act. I know, you know who I'm talking about. Another victim of space madness. (laughs) (laughs) You remember, it is not I who am crazy. It is I who am mad. You, you covet my ice cream bar. (laughs) That's another thing I wanted to shout in the movie. Space madness. But yeah, another actor comes <clears throat> in the middle and uh, really yeah. So, but oh, you man. but you like the movie. I like the movie. I mean, as you know, do you feel like you need to see it again? To I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go out to the theater and see it again. I'm gonna no. see it on DVD. But I'm really interested to see it again on DVD so I can fill well, in all that information from the yeah. beginning. Well, the thing and about just really take it in a second time. I mean, the thing about this movie is that I, I've actually heard that the movie is very is. 
scientifically accurate to the point of if there we could travel t- through wormholes and black holes and all yeah. those sorts of things. Like Neil deGrasse it's... Tyson has come out and said that the movie is actually really accurate, and uh, you know, and also they had this guy Kip Thorne, who was uh, an astrophysicist and you know one of Stephen Hawking's uh, contemporaries, you know, as a consultant on the movie. Oh, good. And the, the thing that's interesting to me with the movie too is that, um, you know, we mentioned Kubrick uh, as the comparison with 2001. Obviously, I'm sure that was a major cornerstone. But yeah. before the movie, uh, before Christopher Nolan uh, became the director, this was actually a Spielberg project. Oh, really? And I could see through a lot of scenes in this movie Spielberg coming like, through. Well, really? especially you know, a, you know, a, a, a relationship between. You know, with a child and their father, hmm. and that being very estranged, and uh, you know, just all of the emotion, just kind of nakedly on the screen, like in uh, Indiana Jones. A little bit, yeah, I guess. Like, uh, uh, you're making Junior. Uh, well, <laughs> well, that was more of a lark. I'm talking about more like uh, it's the same thing. I would say that in a way, Interstellar maybe does better than. I have to wonder if Spielberg looked at Interstellar and kind of thought, uh, I just did this with War of the Worlds and didn't oh, see... Oh, God, I hope he didn't say that. Well, no, I, I hope not either, but, but I just War suddenly... War of the Worlds. <laughs> you don't like that movie? No, I do not. It's okay. We just so, had a long pause there. All right, but the point is, so Interstellar, right, but, it's a but, good but, movie. It, I, I just want to say once more, it's... It, it wears its Kubrick influences on its sleeve, I'd say. Yeah, in good lot. ways. In good ways, though. The so- the vacuum of space where there's no sound. Uh, the 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 soundtrack. I have a question. Did you get like when Matthew McConaughey goes off to inside of that? I don't know if it was like the fourth dimension or something, or that that giant box where he. Well, looks... I think we're uh, we're getting kind of into a thing. Like at the climax of the movie, we're talking about. And the climax of the movie, I'm still trying to like. I understood what kind of where he was, and yet I didn't at the same time. Yeah, he. I guess same... emotionally, I I, got I understood where I was going. that it's it's it has to do with dimensions and with time. Um... I won't say specifically. Maybe when we take a break, I'll explain it to you. But it, okay. it, but I thought that was a really. Uh, I mean, considering where it was going, I thought it was very clever, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know what else to say about it. But, yeah, but okay. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm you, looking forward to seeing this. So, Interstellar better than Battle of the Five Armies? Oh, well, I haven't seen that. <laughs> All right, your well, turn. I tried to do that too. Okay, um, next one on my list. Um, this is the tale of the Princess Kaguya. Oh, I've wanted to see this. Okay, so Princess you... Princess Kaguya. Ka- is that how you pronounce it? That's how I pronounce it. I think so. Kaguya, Kaguya, whatever. Um, but, alright, This so, is Studio Ghibli. This is the latest from Studio Ghibli. Ghibli. Uh, that's another... Ghibli. Thing. It has an H, I think. Ghibli? Well... Ghibli? Nah. I'll stop. I'll okay, stop okay, the you. point is, the... the the studio that, you know, of course, brought us all of Hayao Miyazaki movies. However, this isn't a Miyazaki movie. This is by this director, Isao Takahata. And what and he is known for is Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, yeah. And he also made a movie that we watched together, Pompoko. 
Oh, that's great! Yes, he made the movie with the raccoons who get their powers from rubbing their balls. And here's an important <laughs> parallel. We're talking about uh, Pompoko is based on Japanese folklore, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Tanuki, uh, who who changed who are shapeshifters. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the tale of Princess Kaguya is also a very well-known Japanese folk tale. See, I'm gonna... one of the one of the best-known Japanese folk tales. Well, this is where I show my incredible. I ignorance. just read this story today. Just today. I mean, wow, I, okay. I've read it before, but I read oh. read the book today. Okay, because well, what I'm going to tell you is that I didn't know this was until I looked it up after I saw the movie. I didn't know this was a big folklore story. I yeah. just thought it was. You know this original story that this guy made for the movie, um, and basically what the story is about is, uh, well, at least presented in the movie, uh, you it's about this uh, farmer and his wife. Uh, the farm well, the farmer is a bamboo cutter, yeah, and he's cutting bamboo, and one day uh, finds that there's this little tiny princess in one of the bamboo stalks, yeah, and then very quickly. You know, as if a stalk of bamboo, uh, the little princess suddenly becomes a baby. And then the baby turns, you know, becomes a bigger baby. And, you know, the uh, what happens... She basically grows up within the ma- a matter of months. Yes, very quickly, you know, this little baby goes into childhood and, uh, you know, becomes an adolescent. Um, kind of like uh, animated boyhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, in fantasy form, but... Like, well, what happens is that, um, you know, this little girl, uh, and she doesn't have a name at first. Uh, she's nicknamed by uh, these other kids in the farmland as Little Bamboo. Uh, you know, and she becomes really in love with nature. She's, you know, running all around with these kids, you know, getting into little adventures. Um, you know, she meets this other uh, boy who, uh, you know, they become kind of friends uh, but while this is happening, the uh, the bamboo farmer, uh, you know, finds all this gold in uh, the bamboo stalks, and decides that, you know, I have this print, you know, I know this is a princess, uh, you know, I know it's a princess, so I'm going to make her royalty, and I'm going to kind of buy her way into being a princess. You know, whether she actually wants it or not is another matter. Um, so. He uses all of his gold and, you know, decide, you know, and kind of forces her away from, you know, the way of life that she's been loving, you know, and living. Um, they move into this uh, palace. Uh, she starts to get all of this uh, training to become, you know, a royal princess, even though she's still kind of, you know, a wild kind of girl. She likes to run around and play. You know, that's really where her happiness is. Isn't that always like a lady running around? Yes. Avoiding her responsibilities. Um, yeah, and and then and then you ultimately get this story where, uh, you know, she's kind of, you know, as she we becomes, think, you know, there there are all these things that happen. She gets suitors. I, I'm giving the right story. You kind yeah. of understand where I'm yeah, going. Yeah, right? and and eventually they find out her origins. Ultimately, yeah, that happens kind of late in the story. Right. In this, uh, in this, but, in this movie, like what and hap- that's and that's a very interesting part of the of the entire story. This is a I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if they changed anything, but so I won't tell you anything. But it's it's a very it's a very you know, Odd tale. In the you way know it what ends. it reminded me of at times, like, and this is a weird comparison, but a little bit like a reverse Aladdin uh, or something. Well, in a way that 
all right, you have this girl who doesn't really want to be a princess. You know, she really, you know, she wants to be kind of a nature girl. That's where her heart lies. That's where her interest lies. Uh, but she's being forced into, you know, picking someone to marry. Right. Um, you know, and she, you know, she has all these kind of adults who are, you know, asking for her hand. And, you know, she also kind of hears whisperings at like a, at a party that she can't really appear at. Cause that's part of Japanese custom as a princess. She can't really show her face. Right. Um, and she overhears people talking like, Oh, she's a fake princess. So she bought her way into this and she kind of freaks out at this and, and one of the great sequences in the movie, and probably one of the best things I've seen all year, like she then kind of runs away from like this uh, temp, you know, from her temple that she's at, and you know, runs into the woods, and is just like, I can't take this anymore. I want to, you know, be back in nature. And when she gets to the woods, it's it's like all the, you know, it's now kind of fall going into winter, and everything's falling off the trees, and it's just this really powerful moment where she's like. Where's all the life in nature that I saw? You know, it's... The thing you about this... she's grown up so fast, she hasn't been alive that No, long. yeah. It's really, you know, again, it's a movie about growing up and also about nature. I mean, again, it's Studio Ghibli, so they're very much... You know, they, they make a lot of movies, you know, really lovingly about, you know, the power of nature versus civilization. Um, and in this case... I don't know, would it be spoiling it to say where she actually comes from? It would be spoiling it. All right, so I won't say it, but... But the point is, you should see this movie. Oh, my God, you should see this movie. You should especially see this movie, Andrew. I And the way I saw it, um, it was interesting because they've done an English dubbed version, uh, but I saw... I don't know, I guess it was just based on the timing of it at this theater. I saw it in Japanese, huh. and... There was also an element to it um, that almost made me think of, because uh, really the main conflict for me in the movie, like with the characters, comes between the princess and she gets named Kaguya, and that means, uh, oh god, I'm blanking on. They they actually say it in the movie, and now I'm forgetting. But she gets named by someone else. Um, but. It's between her and her father, or, you know, the kind of father that raises her. Because he is super obsessed with, you know, being, you know, kind of in, you know, royalty. He wants to be, you know, it's in the way he says it, you know, he says all these things about how she's got to do this. And ultimately it's about him. And he's just very blind uh, to her actual wants and needs kind of person. Um and it made me think back to these Japanese movies that I saw made in the 1950s uh, by this director, Kenji Mizuguchi. Uh, or Kenji, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. But Mizuguchi was this really awesome director who made a series of movies, uh, films, uh, titles like Sancho the Bailiff was one, uh, Street of Shame, uh, The Life of Oharu. I mean, I know these names don't mean anything to you, but... No, no. Um, <laughs> but... These were movies, also this movie called Ugetsu, and there were these movies made very much from, like, the woman point of view. They were very much about how women, you know, in medieval Japan were very much like, you have, like, no, you know, status. You are just kind of, like, second-class type citizens, you know, and you're gonna, like, and, you know, in royalty, like, they even show it in the movie, which was kind of interesting because it's, you know, a kid's movie, technically, but... 
you know, they show how if you were to com- become a princess, you had to pluck all of your eyebrows out and, you know, put black makeup on and also blacken your teeth. Hmm. So I almost felt like in a way this director was doing kind of like, you know, a very cute and fuzzy movie, but also a very hardcore feminist type of statement about, you know, what, what it's like to, you know, actually have some kind of say as a woman in a society. And, you know, she kind of shocks all of like the princes who come for her hand. Cause she's very demanding about them, like getting yeah. uh, all of their, uh, she, she lays down some very harsh conditions. <laughs> yeah. She ha- she lays down conditions like, all right, you're, you're promising all of these objects to me, go get them. Yeah. And bring them to me, um, and it's just such a beautifully made movie. It's it's done yeah. in like watercolor. Like you walk it, almost every other shot could be a painting. That's oh, how right. beautiful this movie is. I mean, the director again, he's made, you know, he, he he. I would almost say that he hasn't made as many movies as Miyazaki, but he almost I feel like kind of gets overshadowed by him just but because... But what he's done, I mean... What he's Poco done... and Grave of the Fireflies are two very famous animated movies. Yeah, he also made another movie. Uh, it's, it's It's been little seen in the U.S., and I could just talk about this just for a second. Uh, this movie called Only Yesterday, which was made in the early 90s. It's this anime movie that is... Not not fantasy. It's actually pretty well. Grave of the Fireflies isn't either. That's very no, definitely dark. Not. Oh god, that I could just cry thinking about that movie right now. But um, only yesterday is a movie that's just a realistically told story about uh, these uh, young Japanese girls uh, in their teenage years, um, and we've never seen it in properly in the U.S. I happened to catch a screening like in a theater, you know, through like a Studio Ghibli uh, retrospective. It's never been released in the U.S. because even though Disney owns the rights to all of Studio Ghibli's movies, they won't put it out because there's a mention of menstruation in the movie. Isn't that great? Uh, And, you know, and and part of the contract is they can't re-edit any of their movies. So they just decide, all right, we won't release it at all. Because of this one, ooh, uh, ooh, a kid might know what a period is. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> but the point is, though, like, yeah, this movie was excellent. It was, uh, I mean, I, I, would, I would say the Lego movie is still my favorite animated movie <laughs> of last year. Well, the, the Lego movie was awesome. So. Yeah, well, it's awesome. Um, but Princess Kaguya is, you know, just, that's a... I mean, the Lego movie is a lot more fun, but this is a really, like, this is a beautiful masterpiece this type is a movie. Piece of art. You know, this might be the director's last film as well. Like, he's almost, like, 80 years old now. Wow. You know, he's even older than Miyazaki, and he's, and Miyazaki has said, like, all right, The Wind Rises is my last movie. So it's, uh, it's so sad. But, um, yeah, and, like, the one thing that was also kind of, com- like, satisfying to me, um, and I was at first I was a little disturbed. Like when I was in the theater, um, seeing the movie, there were a bunch of like kind of young girls sitting behind me. Like they were maybe, I'd say maybe between the ages of eleven and fourteen. I, I don't know how old they were exactly. They, they were they girls. were probably teens. Pre-teens. Yeah, something like that. 
they were kind of like giggling through large parts of the movie and saying little things to each other. They weren't saying it enough to the point where I could really turn around and say to them, you know, shut up. But they were still annoying me. Yeah. And yet when I when I got out of the movie, like the movie ends in a very emotional way. Like if you know the ending of yeah. that story, it's really it's really sad, even though it's kind of like it's kind of, this is the way it's gotta be. Yeah. Like I know what you're and but about. when I was waiting but then when I was standing out in the hallway after the movie, these girls were all talking to each other and I was overhearing them and they were saying Oh my god, I was I was crying at the end of that movie. I'm crying now. You hear and that? There's hope for the future. Yes, there is hope in the audiences. So, all right, go see this. Well, it's it's playing very limited, so I don't know if you'll get a chance to. But when you'll, it comes out on DVD, on DVD, yes, yeah, see it on DVD. I may buy it just for just because I I know so I you know because I'm familiar with the you film. would really dig it. I think right. it's it's a it's a seriously done quality anime movie that looks nothing like any other movie out there. Right. If I were to show you the trailer, you would see it. I've right. seen the trailer. Oh, you have? Okay. So you know the kind of style. Yeah, I know I'm exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's go on to uh, my last one before we get on to our next feature. Uh, this is the, the best movie I've seen in the last two weeks. Oh, And okay. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's Hexen. The, I have not seen the it. silent Swedish movie. From I have heard about this movie for a long time. It's it's a movie about witchcraft. Yes, it's a documentary style movie about witchcraft. It's actually one of the first documentaries ever made. Yes, it, it, in it came out in 1922, which is also the same year as Nanook of the North. And those two, uh, you know, they're they're very. One was made in, in this is made in Europe somewhere. The other is made was made in America. So they're they're pretty much concurrent. I don't think you could really rightfully claim one to be the first, you know, except if you go by release date. But but Hoxon is a silent movie about witchcraft, mm-hmm. explaining the origins of people's beliefs in witchcraft and the source of the witch craze back in the Middle Ages that led to the deaths of several thousand people. Now, how do they... What's their presentation like? Because it's a silent well, documentary. So, Alright, well, there's... That's the most interesting thing. It's, it almost seems like a lecture. Because mm. in the beginning... Is there a lot of in, text? In the opening credits, um, it mentions that, uh, that, you've been give, that the people in the audience have been given a handbill. As if, as you would in maybe a musical or a play. Okay. So it feels like something where you go to it to because to learn something, and it's almost like the other thing I've compared it to is an ancient PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> but so are there like but, slides? But one thousand percent more interesting. Okay. Because it, there is a lot of text, and that's necessary because they're not. There is there are dramatized parts, but they don't use they don't overuse title cards in the way that's bad in silent movies. We've talked about this. Yeah, communicating ideas through movement and and through images. They, they're not trying. Uh, the only time they use title cards is to really explain something. Okay, and and to get across some information that's really important. Do they have any? So do they have reenactments of like particular acts of witchcraft? Well, yeah, it's. Oh, man, there is so much in this film. It's 
it, it's almost overwhelming for me to try to to recount exactly what's in it. It's got a seven act structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is kind of like the lecture. This is like the background. This is how people thought about the universe, and this is why witchcraft was so widely believed. And then you get into a dramatization, which is kind of like uh, the typical witch hunt. Okay. Where it, where there are characters and there are actors playing parts very well, by the way. Oh. It's not like they're giving constantly giving lines, and it's not melodramatic. And it's and, and it's subtlety. not corny like a uh, like an after school special. No, it's uh, if you were to watch something done this well in modern days, you would think that that was a really good uh, oh. dramatization. Uh, and they do, and it's and it's staggering because it's such a sophisticated film on a technical level. Okay. It's got great special effects for its time. It's oh. not just a lecture, and it's not just this play about witchcraft. It's got these great sequences of witches and sabbaths uh-huh. and scenes of witches flying mm-hmm. that you makes you... And it's made in the same way that... You know how the first ships were done in Star Wars? Like, how the, you, know, you move the camera around the model? Yeah. That's how they did the witches flying. Oh, okay. They had a stationary witch, and they moved the camera to make it look like she was flying. And they do, they do so much with costumes, and there are these little, and there's this there are these great makeup effects, and there's a little bit of stop motion too, kind of like early stop motion, not great, but you realize that it must have taken serious effort to do it. And oh man, it is such a great film. Cool. One of the Probably one of the greatest silent films ever made. Oh, okay. It's also very informative. There is a little historical inaccuracy as to the numbers of people who actually died in the in the witch hunts. Well, maybe by well, you also have to think at that point they were working with the research they had. Yeah, that's uh, that's something to consider. But otherwise, it's very solid. Okay. You can point out maybe one or two facts that are probably not true, uh, which is not the researcher's fault. Because, again, it was made in 1922. But, you know, you just... Uh, but everything else is uh, so fantastic. I took six pages of notes watching Jeez. this. And then I watched it again with the director's commentary. Oh. And there's another version wait, of what... Wait, director's... No, not director's commentary, sorry. Yeah. Um, wow, that, that director must have had some longevity yeah, there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Not director's comedy. There's commentary by... By a, a, a scholar. Yeah, by a film scholar. Okay. Uh, but this is the, the Criterion. Yeah, movie. it's the Criterion version. And it also included uh, is another version of it, which was when the film was re-released back in 1968. Huh. And it's narrated by William S. Burroughs with a jazz soundtrack. I haven't seen it yet. All right, but I'm going to watch that one first. <laughs> Oh my God! I would, I would seriously suggest. Like, I just want to see Run a witch street. I just want to <laughs> see like a witch on his on her broom, and you hear like, "It ain't no sin if you mm. go on your bones." They you don't know off it. your skin and dance around your bones. Yeah. All right, sorry, I was I trying to quote that. Like, wasn't ain't that... no sin. Yeah, to pick off your skin. Thank All you. Right. But uh, okay, seriously though, I would uh, watch the original. First. Okay. Because it deserves to be seen on its own terms. And uh, and I am going to watch all three versions. It's it's something mm. I rarely do. Huh. And, uh, oh man, it just has to be seen. 
Look for its time and for all the effects. Yeah. It's it's breathtaking. Cool. Go ahead. I'm I'm I dig that. Good review. Um all right, so this is the last movie that I'll talk about before we get into our uh list. So the so the thing. Uh the last movie that I saw uh, in the past few weeks was this movie called Force Majeure. Okay. Now this is a movie uh that is getting some good attention in terms of uh like the foreign race and like the uh the awards right now. It was up at the Golden Globes. It didn't win. Uh, hopefully, it'll get an Oscar nomination. Uh, what this movie is about, it's set in, I think I'm going to say Sweden. It might be a different country, maybe Switzerland. I can't be sure because characters speak multiple languages. They speak... And we're what American, I think is, so... Well, yeah, well, there is some... Well, characters sometimes do speak English, but they also speak what I think is Swiss, or they might be speaking French. I this is one of those times I just was not paying attention to that. Okay. But all right, but the point like, the movie is about this family, this husband, his wife, and their two little kids. They're at this ski lodge uh, for a week, and what happens on the first? I think it actually it's the second day that they're there. Uh, the movie does that thing where it kind of demarcates each day, like The Shining. A little bit. Well, The Shining kind of jumps around a little bit. Um, in terms of its days, all of a sudden it'll go like Tuesday, Dumb. and it'll go like Saturday. Um, it's like what well, it happened to Thursday. Um, but Thursday got eaten by Saturday. <laughs> um, Jack Torrance ate it. Right. But um, what happens is uh, they at this mount at the ski lodge. Occasionally there are little avalanches, but they're the kind of avalanches that apparently. There are like these kind of controlled avalanches that happen yeah. on a mountain. You have to do where, that to make so sure you know what a big avalanche. About. Okay, yeah. yeah. What happens is like the family's like eating out on like the, this patio area, and they see this avalanche coming down their way, and you know the kids are kind of freaking out, and the avalanche actually comes much closer than they expect, and oh, but but the family lives. Everyone that's on the patio lives okay, but what happens is the husband kind of runs away from the table uh, without, you know, taking any of the kids with him or staying to protect them. Um, and it's about What happens is basically, though, like, you know, the wife kind of asks him, like, what happened? And the husband basically spends most of the movie denying that he did anything wrong. Like, he doesn't oh, really no. see that he, you know, that he, he... He really thinks that... Like, you can't be sure... You know, he, he, uh, he he's either lying or he's just really embarrassed but like the wife well, keeps on trying to get out of him you know you did this thing that's really embarrassing and what you get is kind of this very cringe inducing comedy um i don't know if you remember when we watched the movie hump day yeah I yeah that. yeah it has that kind of tone it's just like super uncomfortable Oh, like human yeah. nature unfolding in front of you. Because what happens is, like, you know, they, the, this couple, they have, like, kind of like a night where they're, they have a few too many drinks, or the wife especially has too many drinks in front of a couple of their friends. Oh, yeah. And she kind of unloads this avalanche story, and the husband is just kind of sitting there, like, devastated. And finally, she kind of shows footage on, I think it was, like, her phone or something, showing, like, no, you ran away from the table. So, 
It's like the movie's the equivalent of, um, it's like there was this Seinfeld episode years ago that I loved where, uh, uh, the character George is at, like, this kid's party, and this, like, small fire happens in, uh, the kitchen, and George freaks out and runs and pushes, like, all the children and <laughs> party clowns out of the way and, like, gets out to get out of the house, and <laughs> it's like that movie, Cross with Hump Day, um, there is, it's, it is kind of a serious movie at parts, because, again, this guy has to deal with the fact that, you know, I really let my family down, yeah. and there is a real serious core to it, but at the same time, there's also a lot of humor out of just, you so, know, so when you can't admit something that you did wrong. So it is funny. It is it's funny at times. There are other points and where... And not just, like, in the kind of, like, this is a... Oh, this is kind of a funny situation. No, this it, there are laughs. There are laughs. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, there are laughs. Again, there are times where you almost aren't sure if you should be laughing because <laughs> it's just, like, so awkward. Uh, some of the situations that... Uh, again, if, you know, if a character would just say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. But, of course, you know, we're human beings, we can't really say that. Just like in Hump Day, it's like, oh wait, did I agree to have sex with my friend? Oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, I guess we're going to do it. Yeah, normal people would be like, <laughs> oh yeah, that was a terrible idea. Yeah, um, the movie is really good. I was I was actually loving the movie. Like, It was one of my best films of the year, actually for a good portion, until the ending. Huh. Like, the en- it, like, what happened is like the last five to ten minutes of the movie, just that... It's not that it's exactly bad, but it's one of those things where it's like, well, that was really unnecessary. You kind of wrapped up your story, like, right there, and now your movie is still going on, (laughs) and you have one more conflict that is just, why is this happening, and why are you doing this? Is the wife going to go to the Undying Lands? Is is she going to get on the ship with Gandalf and the rest of the elves? No, 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 not not that bad. Um, there, there's no like unnecessary shoehorning in Lord of the Rings mythology into uh, this movie. Actually, well, um, but it's very um, the movie looks really good too. It's very, it's very much, of course, because it's they're skiing at this lodge and they're on this mountain. Um, there's all the snow. Um, there's one point where characters are kind of lost in a haze of snow. Um, Wait, it's the Cohen brothers. We're saved. <laughs> oh, you betcha. <laughs> um, so, yeah, go see this movie. If it's playing at your local art house, uh, that should be probably your best bet. Um, it has people who I just I, I do not recognize. They're, it's very much like... They're foreign people. They kind of are. Um, I don't even know what the director's done before. Uh, I'm almost a little nervous, though, that this is the kind of movie that I could see getting very all too easily remade for American oh, audiences yeah. because it has. This the, does seem like something. It has the kind of premise happen. that. Well, it's happened so many times uh, in recent years, just with you know, even like the girl. I mean, granted, this is a much more successful franchise, but like the girl with the dragon tattoo. That was made in Sweden first, and then, of course, they had to make their American version. Um, Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was uh, Force Majeure. Okay. Now, are we going to take a break, or are we going to keep going? 
Um, let's talk about one more movie and let's take a break. Do you have one more? Well, no, I mean our movies. Okay, well then let's, let's do the list. All right, you may remember, ladies and gentlemen, from our last uh, podcast, we gave each other a list of movies. That's right. We each have a list of uh, 26 movies apiece. Uh, I think it was a 26? 26. Yeah, each 26 movies. And they are movies that that one of us, that the other has seen, but the, that, like, I have seen none of the movies on this list, but Andrew has seen all of them. I gave Jack a list of 26 movies he hasn't seen, but I have. Jack gave me a list of 26 movies he's seen, but I haven't. Yes. So, in other words, the idea is that we each get a little more cinematically educated, but we can also talk to the other about that particular movie, because at least one of us has seen it. Right. And for me... We're definitely getting educated because this one's going back, way back to the dawn. Yes. Well, we each have. Well, actually, we each are going to be delving into cinema history yes. for our picks. But you go first because, and this is actually another silent film. Yes, this is another silent film. The one I chose to watch first is the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm. And again, a silent film. Uh, it's about. It is about something, even though it might not seem to be. It's no. about. Uh, a small town where there's a carnival, and one of the carnival exhibitors is a doctor who has the sleepwalker, a man mm-hmm. who's never been awake his entire life, and he uses the sleepwalker to commit murders. Yes. Or does he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that question hangs over. I remember it being also like a character like goes to... A place. I want. I want to be a little vague because even though the movie is almost a hundred years Th- there old, there is a framing device. To there this is a film, framing which device puts in, which puts in doubt the entire narrative. Well, there's also arguably the first twist in cinematic history. Well, I think that time the guy shot us in the Great Train Robbery was a big twist. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a bit of a twist. I guess you could say it's kind of an early thriller. Yeah, it's an early thriller, and it's also an example. It's pro- probably what's cited most often as the first kind of German expressionist film. Like maybe right. there were, may, there probably were films done in the in that expressionist style before this. It's just that this is the first one. This is made arguably in the most famous German. Yeah, expressionist and what film. we mean by expressionist is, you know, when you have sets that are exaggerated to quite a degree. You exaggerated have, to the point of abstraction. Yeah, abstract. You have elements like doors that are not square. Giant stairs. Giant stairs, uh, almost kind of cubist uh, scenery. Mm-hmm. Uh, town, there's like uh, one image in Dr. Caligari that sticks with me is this is like a backdrop of a town mm-hmm. and the te- and the houses are very skewed and yeah uh, odd and things and even simple things like shadows they're not created by the light they're actually painted on the floor yeah it's a very abstract very disorienting uh, scenery mm-hmm. uh and it make and the effect is to make things seem very dreamlike. Yeah, extremely dreamlike, almost kind of nightmarish to to. Yeah, a you're extent. right on that border of of dream and nightmare. Yes. And here's an interesting fact: the sleepwalker. Mm-hmm. His name is uh, Cesare in the film. Okay. But he is played by Conrad Veidt. 
Oh, okay. Conrad Wright. Why did I not recognize him? And no, you would not recognize him because he is very heavily made up. Okay. Even for a silent film, he yeah. has like black stuff right. around his eyes. Conrad Veidt, uh he had a long movie career, but he's probably best known for playing uh, Major Strasser in Casablanca, the yes. evil Nazi. Oh yes. Yeah, and and he was a German who actually had to leave not, had to leave Germany because of the Nazis, <laughs> and he actually ended up playing a lot of Nazis in mm. his career. Well, I have well a piece of trivia as well about Caligari. Um, Fritz Lang was originally supposed to direct the movie. Oh, really? And I think at the last minute he... I don't know why he dropped out, but it got directed by this other guy named Robert Ween. Yeah, he's um, certainly not as famous. I and mean, when you hear of Dr. Caligari, you're not thinking of the director. No, you're just thinking about these incredible sets, this atmosphere. You know, it's also an early example of a horror movie before... You know, you had, like, Dracula or Frankenstein or something like that. Before Nosferatu. Yeah, even before Nosferatu. This which is, is, example which is of also technically so, a German expression of his film. I yeah, psych- psychological horror that really kind of is meaning to get at, you know, your subconscious in a way. It's trying to get at certain fears that you have of things becoming distorted in the world and your perception of reality. Yeah. and But uh, did you dig the movie? Well, I did like it. It's the thing is, I don't think the the script is that great. Hmm. The story has some flaws. I it Maybe. does, and not necessarily because of the twist at the end or because of. Well, I thought that or, I thought the or twist was pretty it. awesome. It is kind of awesome, but it, it, it seems like it, it, uh, it didn't it didn't hit me. Okay. Because and I don't know if it, it, it. I'm not sure why. I'm trying to think of the twist comes, but it doesn't feel like anything is building up to this twist where you're like, oh, that's why things were that way in the movie. Well, the well, the character though that is observing a lot of stuff, we're kind of led to believe that he's just a normal person in this environment. Yeah. Without saying too much, he's kind of visiting this place, right? Yeah. I'm trying to remember it, because it's been a little while since I've seen the movie. And the, I do have an interpretation of the plot that uh, th- that uh, would, would be very interesting if, you're, if you've seen the movie. I'm not yeah. going to tell you it, because it involves a lot of spoilers. But okay. there's nothing in the plot that really indicates any of the truthfulness of any of my theories hmm. or there's nothing in the plot that builds to that twist and makes it make a lot of sense. It's like yeah. they put it on, they put that twist in there, but you don't earn the twist maybe as not. much. Maybe. I mean, it's still a better twist than like, I don't know, the usual suspects or something. Hmm. Uh, that, that's just my opinion. I, I kind of find that <laughs> twist a little well, weird. Man. Maybe that's the wrong thing to mention. Actually, the thing that the movie, I think, um, it's kind of, this is one of those kind of cool movie geek type things, especially because of this director. Uh, when you if you ever watch the movie Shutter Island, uh, Scorsese was very influenced by uh, Caligari. Oh, for, I have to watch for Shutter that. Island, then. Yeah, um, in terms of making a kind of like a old school horror movie that really preys on you know your mind. Now, here's something I want to talk about with silent films. Okay. The version I saw was the Kino version. Okay, I, I forget which version I saw. I think I might have seen it's, it's, one that was on Netflix or something. I, I, that's not so much... That's not what I want to bring up. It's the, the, the idea of soundtracks. 
for silent films. Mm. Now, the, the problem with silent films is they're mostly silent. Yeah, they were <laughs> when 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 a movie was played, you know. And I don't most mean, often, like, mostly silent because I'm just overlooking things. But I, well, towards I, the end of the silent cinema, you technology progressed to the point where you could add a soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, things like Modern Times or, or City Lights. And, th- and that's the original music that was composed for those movies. But with a lot of silent films, they were made before that. You have to be careful which certain silent films that you're watching uh, the score... Like, you know, again, that's a score that was made today. It wasn't made back then. Back then, you just had a guy at the piano. You had a guy at the piano, or you had an orchestra, or an organ, like at the time we saw Phantom of the Opera. Yes. I've also seen a few other... I saw Nosferatu with a piano. Yeah. That was... You know, you have then a person who, you know, is actually creating their own kind of score for it. And actually, what they used to even have was... I also just found this out recently. I never knew this. Along with the piano player, they also had somebody on the drums, like who would do oh. like with a snare drum, or like they would do little sound effects at times. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you were dependent upon a live person to provide your soundtrack. Now the problem is with silent movies when you release them on DVD, you don't have a piano player in your house. No. Uh, Unless if you want to turn off the sound and play your own piano. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we, you could do that. That sounds fun. But So what so you have score, to do is when you put when you put a sound film on a DVD, you have to give it a score. So some some sometimes people do this really well. The version of Haxon I saw had a really good soundtrack. Okay. Now, this is not necessarily a problem, but the version of Dr. Caligari I saw had an experimental soundtrack. Hmm. With, you know, and I'm not saying anything about experimental music. I like experimental music. But a lot of times it does not fit. Hmm. You're getting people who are putting in soundtracks who, I don't know what their skill is, but they just don't seem to fit with the movie. Right. Like sometimes you could tell it's an obviously synthesized thing that was done on like a keyboard, or sometimes it's just like some generic orchestral music that. Someone got out of the public domain archive and really low, mm-hmm. that's on really low quality yeah. DVDs. But this experimental soundtrack on this film didn't really gel for me at all. Mm. It was just like, oh, we got this crazy expressionist film, and let's just put an experimental soundtrack on it, and this should be awesome. And it, it doesn't really do much for it. Yeah. That's... Something a little more conventional would have been better. Yeah, that, that's always a very tricky thing. I mean, that. Uh... I don't know if I talked about it before on the show, but that was the thing with the movie Metropolis. Uh, that movie, I've seen multiple versions of that film. And the first version I saw of it was... Su- I got it for, like, I think, 99 cents. And it was, like, you know, shorter, and it was, you know, before they restored the movie. And they well, had they a... store Metropolis, like, every 10 years. No. Yeah, but this was one... But no, but this was not... This wasn't restored at all. This was, like almost like a public domain version, and the music was terrible. Oh. It was like music that just did not fit at all. Was it the 80s kind of soundtrack? No, no, I've seen that one. See, that one, it's interesting because not all of it fits, but it it's kind of interesting because it's 
so cheesy. I don't know. It's just <laughs> I so saw weird. Metropolis on the internet just with a whole bunch of Radiohead songs. I heard about that version. Yeah. I never watched that. That must be weird. It was okay. That they must had, be like uh, that must be like watching like a just a like one of those uh, music videos or something on YouTube. Yeah. One of those music video things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah, so Caligari, though, uh, enjoyed it. It's a it. piece of cinema history, and you yeah. should see it. Yes. Because, I mean, it's... I, I would even say... Even if you don't appreciate... There are flaws with it. It's not It's not. A, it's not bulletproof. No, but, but I, I think the atmosphere won me over completely. I think that that is an example of having such a daring level of craft that it carries the movie over its flaws. Yeah. It would be interesting to know the story of how it was made because I don't I don't uh right. Like who was behind the entire look of the film because it has these these great images. It has a combination of you know you know again you know ti- timing is always the context as well. I mean, I talked about watching uh, one of the Mabuse, Mabuse movies yeah. and how, you know, that was made in Germany at a particular time. This was made in Germany in 1920. You know, they're just right off of World War One, yeah. And, you know, they were probably a little distorted themselves. They were like, what the, what the hell happened to us? You make a good point. I mean, there was a time when... Before there was a time after World War One and before World War Two when Germany was in this kind of in this very weird place, mm-hmm. and then films came out like came out of that time like Metropolis and uh, and Doctor Caligari and Nosferatu, yeah, and it's uh, it's still worth it to just get a little bit of that time period. Yeah, I think it's... It, again, it's not like one of the great sound films, but it's worth worth watching. It's not better than Haxon, I'll tell you that, but it's oh. certainly <laughs> something you should see. Oh, boy. All right, let's All go right. on to your movie. Okay. Now, this is one I'm surprised that you didn't see. Yeah, I, I was surprised in too, because the thing is, I know a lot of history behind this movie. Uh, I knew a lot of it before I saw the movie, and this is uh, High Noon. With Gary Cooper. Mr. Gary Cooper. Uh, Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Lloyd Bridges. All right, now I have, before I talk about the movie, I have I have a trivia question Leave for you. Leave it, Damn it. <laughs> you knew it before I was going to ask it. Yeah, my my, my question, well, to do the Jeopardy thing, my question was, uh, who is the first person you see in the film? And... That was Lee Van Cleef. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef. Would you, of, of the good and the bad and the ugly. Yes, and he has there no lines like, in the movie. No lines. Well, I actually see him. Well, I should actually add, um, and this is actually a piece of true. I, I don't know if you knew. He was originally up for uh, the Lloyd Bridges part. You know, the guy who's uh, Gary Cooper's deputy who, you know, has yeah. a big falling out with him. He, Lloyd, Lee Van Cleef was originally up for that part, but the head of the studio, like, Thought that Lee Van Cleef's nose was too crooked, and he, he does wanted, have a very distinct. He nose. wanted Lee Van Cleef to get a nose job because he looked, I guess, too sinister. And Lee Van Cleef said no, and so they wouldn't let him have the part. But the director felt bad, so that he gave him the, you know, the part of that gunman, which is really no know, compensation, a, really. No, but that's still a cool part to play. You know, he doesn't have any dialogue, but he has real. Right away, even from that early age, he had a real screen presence. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so this movie, 
I knew what it was about, of course, and I knew some of its history. Um, what's about made is during the uh, made during the the the, yeah, blah, blah. You the communist. Well, all right, well, let me just give a basic rundown of the plot for uh, those of you who haven't seen it, and maybe some there some of you haven't. Um, there, uh, Gary Gary Cooper plays this marshal in a small western town, and this all takes place over the course of an hour and twenty minutes. Um, it's almost real time. It is real time. All right. Yeah, what happens is, um, this marshal, it's the day of his marriage, and it's also the day that he's, uh, you know, going to give up his badge and kind of lead a life just, of peace. Just with... two more days till retirement. This was that before <laughs> that, this was the start of that cliche, pretty much. And, and not well, the day of his days, retirement. It's like, and just like, 15 minutes till retirement. Yes, but what happens is, you know, like, this, he's getting married uh, that day, and to he's going to go off to Grace Kelly. And, um, but with, but, but this, uh, criminal, uh, named Frank Miller, and, yeah, he's a criminal, he made the spirit. Say uh, what you will about Frank Miller. <laughs> so Frank Miller, his nemesis, who he yes. put away, he, yeah, is Frank coming Miller, back to town. Yes, Frank Miller, uh, you know, he was supposed to be hanged, but he got, uh, pardoned, and then, you know, now he's coming back, and the small posse is waiting for him by this train station, uh, you know, for him to come on the train, and, you know, he's gonna obviously, you know, come after the marshal that put him away. Um, now... He's supposed to arrive on the noon train. The noon train, hence high noon. Um, yeah. So what happens is, uh, Gary Cooper's marshal, I'm kind of blanking on his name. I right? forget you know, his I name, watch the name He's Gary Cooper. Yeah, he's Gary Cooper. He's now, um, you know, he's trying to get some deputies, of course, to help him you know, face off against Frank Miller and his gang, but all the townspeople pretty much tell him, like, no, where, where are you, crazy? Why don't you just leave town? And there's actually a moment early in the movie where he is leaving. Yeah, um, and he goes... And yet he decides yeah. to go back. Um, and then he decides, no, I have to stand up for, you know, I have to face this guy. You know, who's going to help me? And one by one, for various reasons... Mostly cowardice, but also just because, like, you know, what were you crazy? We don't want this gunman in our town. And not only that, you should leave so you don't, like, you know, I mean, we're going to have the new marshal here tomorrow. And, you know, there's also a conflict with one of uh, uh, Gary Marshall's former deputies, played by Lloyd Bridges. Uh, you know, and, you know, he wants to be marshal himself, but, you know, Gary Cooper doesn't want that. Um,. Yeah. And so ultimately, you know, it comes down to just, you know, I have to face these guys by myself. Um, yeah. And granted, there are a couple other little characters that maybe could help him, but Gary Cooper is like, no, 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 you're 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 too drunk. No, no, you're you're just a little kid. Um, <laughs> valid points, by the way. Probably valid points. Um, but so yeah, what the movie just... ultimately comes down to, I mean. It's kind of weird for me to watch this now because, you know, I have seen this kind of story before, but this is the kind of original take on it. This, this is the definitive take, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, and, um, and of course, with the, the history behind it, I knew very much before I'd seen the movie. Like, I, it was weird that I never watched the movie before, I, I don't, and I'm not sure why. I think I just am not, I just haven't, in my movie going, really rushed to watch a lot of Gary Cooper movies, and I think there's, I forget if on, I without saying the movie, I for, I forget if 
there's another movie on the list that's a Gary Cooper movie. But maybe there I don't is. Remember. I'd have to ask you later. But the point is, um, the movie was made in 1952. Um, it's produced by Stanley Kramer, who, you know, his whole career is nothing but movies about things. You know, uh, well, Judgment... <laughs> that's a very big subject. Well... <laughs> Well, you know, Judgment at Nuremberg... I believe he had something uh, to do with 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, too. Really? Maybe his production company. Maybe. Well, he produced a lot of movies. I mean, he produced The Wild One. Um, But this is a movie that he made as kind of like an important movie. He was known for making, quote, important films, so to speak. And with this film, they were making a statement about... uh, the the communist witch hunt specifically though in Hollywood yeah you know because you had people being called by HUAC uh, and, House you know, on American face, Activities yes Committee. under Joseph McCarthy you know and to well, basically uh, name names Joseph McCarthy comes a little later I think it was around that time fifty two fifty three well that was the time period wasn't it? It, it yeah it is the general time period. yeah you're right um but and there there are these I there's the fact that a lot of people are scared of communism. Yeah, they they were. And they're willing to throw a lot of people under the bus just to make sure that there are no communists in Hollywood. Yeah, and or who's going to and who's going to stand up to you know, you know, and do what's right? I mean, that's basically kind of the idea. And now, of course, that was the context then. Um, and actually, there was and at the time there was some criticism of it. I mean, it was still a widely acclaimed movie. Um, the thing that I always have found interesting, and I don't know if you knew this, uh, John Wayne and uh, and I think oh, Howard Hawks too hated this movie. Yeah, I they really John hated really it. Like it. They they thought that like oh the, you know I hate like the, the, the everybody's so cowardly and you know why you know you should just actually go and try to just find you know you know pay some guys to be your gunman and do this and that. And what's interesting is that their criticism of High Noon became the movie Rio Bravo. Right. Um, very mu- it's, very much inform- it's very much a response to High Noon. Yeah, it has kind of the same It's uh, It's about approach. two different worldviews, pretty much. I mean, John Wayne I mean, was an unabashed conservative. Yes. And I, and, I don't think he, and I don't think he believed in his heart that people could be this cowardly and not stand up for what's right. No. I and, mean, and you, and, uh... I could see the argument made... Well, the thing is, though, in High Noon, I think the point of view is that it... There's a lot of factors going into people. It's not just It's that, not just cowardice. Well, it's also, I think, a character even points out to Gary Cooper in the movie, you know, people need time to, you know, really get, uh, you know, organized in such a way. I mean, you're giving them an hour to kind of process this this information that this gunman is coming into town. Uh, You know, if you had a little more time to, you know, gather your deputies uh, to get a little more organized, then maybe it wouldn't be that much of an issue. Yeah, but I I think, but in the end, part of the problem is they... No, no one's willing to get involved because of the consequences. Yes, that they could be killed, or or that the town will come to harm. Uh, but the but the really uh, very pitiful thing is that they they begin to see it as this isn't between us and Frank Miller. This is between Frank Miller and you. Yeah. And they're willing to let this guy who's been their marshal for 
years. Yeah, go and against this guy or be or be chased by him, and, and and they're just telling you why didn't you get out of town? Why are you trying to get us involved in your thing? When it's really it is everybody's problem. They just they're they don't see it that way. They don't understand what really is. Yeah, at stake. I mean he is you know he is a you know a vengeful criminal coming to you know take lives. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, now the interesting thing too is that there are like a couple people who do, you know, who do want to stand with Gary Cooper, but it's like, but like there's one guy who is a deputy who's sticking around if there are other people who stand up. And when he finds out that nobody else is, yeah, he decides that he's gonna, he leaves. Yeah, he leaves. And, uh, you know, there's even one guy who has just like one eye. And you know, it's kind of interesting with that. He never kind of pops up again in the movie. No, it, that was a weird moment. Um, Someone had to be there's less also, important than Lee there's, Leaf. No, there's also a sub. There, and there's also a subplot. Now this, I'm not gonna say I was confused by this, but it uh, it was the one thing that I didn't. That uh, I'm not gonna say. Well, the the subplot with the Mexican girlfriend. Right. I don't well, know how. I, I think part of that I don't it was, really know. It was it was kind of a love triangle between her, Frank Miller, and Gary Cooper's character. Okay, yeah. Uh, and I don't. I, I don't think it quite works that well. I think it kind of. I don't. I yeah. It I'm, kind of takes some of the momentum away from the situation. I mean, the real. Well, I, I think the part of the reason is there is because Grace Kelly is also in the movie. Yeah, and yeah, she's, and she plays a part too. She's not she's not just left at the altar or anything. She has her own say about events. She actually and she, and she has pops a conver- up in the climax. Too. Yeah, and she has this conversation with the li- with the Mexican lady. with this uh, Mexican lady, and it has to do with standing by mm-hmm. her husband, and because she doesn't want to stick around either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mean, they she, both want to catch the train out. Yeah, she's. She's a Quaker. She doesn't believe in violence because, and also because her family was killed by was killed by outlaws. Yeah, she doesn't want to go through something like that again, and she can't. And she she can't really face it. So she basically leaves Gary Cooper by himself. Uh, and I think that's what that subplot was about. It was about yeah. Grace Kelly's character and about the Mexican lady meeting and exchanging an idea about being faithful. To I got the that. Man. But I don't. Uh, I'd have to watch it again. I'm not sure. It's it's a very. It's not a huge subplot. I think. No, it's not. It, but it was just. I think it wasn't bad. But it was just the kind of thing that I didn't think the actress was very strong. I mean, Grace Kelly is probably you know is a better actress. Well, and she's fine. Well, yeah, there you go. Grace oh, Kelly. Yeah. Um, and Gary, God, Gary Cooper's so good in this movie. I know. It's just he. And he was an older he expresses guy so by much then. conflict. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting? Also, something else I read. Uh, Gregory Peck was originally up to play that part for the Marshal. Gregory he, Peck. Gregory Peck was in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, a guy, I can't, I'm making him sound like John Houston. Um, <laughs> future. <laughs> the future. The future, Scout. The future. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but but um he was supposed to be Gary Cooper's he character? he turned it down I think because he had just done a western and I think he thought it was a little similar and then he later said it was like the biggest regret of his life yeah um but Gary Cooper he shows so much conflict throughout it because he does think at times 
well, maybe I should get out of here. Like, he does have a moment where he goes into, like, a horse stable, and he's kind of like, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't. And Lloyd Bridges yeah. is like, no, get on the horse. Yes. And then they have a big fight, have and a fight I love that. Getting, getting out of there. Like, the movie has so much momentum that builds. Like, I... I got it. Get, it gets tense. I, I got into the movie more actually as it went along, like as suddenly the minutes mount, and as he's literally walking from place to place in town, and he goes to the church, and he goes to a couple other places, and they just one by one keep turning him down. Yeah. And not only that, he overhears people kind of debating, like one, like a bartender at one point is like, "So how quickly do you think Frank Miller is going to kill uh, the marshal?" Yes. <laughs> And then Gary Cooper hears and just punches him. Yeah, and uh, another thing about Gary Cooper showing so much emotion—he was—he was middle aged by then. Yeah, I, you remember there's there's young Gary Cooper from films like uh, Pride of the Yankees and Sergeant York. That's the movie you were thinking about, by the way. Sergeant okay. Like uh, or Meet John Doe, I think. Or uh, or Mr. Deeds goes to town. Okay. And that's young Gary Cooper, and this is towards the end of his career, and he's and you know he's showing his age, and. You can see in that film, like he's a retiring marshal. He is worn down, and and he has to face this guy and yeah. his gang. I feel like the movie is much more. It has thinking about it more after I watched it. It has it has the complexity that you know somebody like John Wayne I think wouldn't quite get. Um, maybe, so. maybe you're right. I mean, John. Uh, uh, you, you gotta love John Wayne for, you know, The Searchers and for every other <laughs> well, for, well, for a few movies. Yeah. I, I, I'm I not as huge a fan as I guess I am told I should be. Yeah. Uh, maybe I haven't. Maybe. I, I've, I've seen it's, him be good in movies, but I'm just... Yeah. Uh, he, but had, he had a particular style and he, he kind of stuck with it style. which is You're why right. which is why um the searchers and the men who shot liberty valance are so striking yes. because they kind of break that mold a little bit hmm. um whereas with gary cooper though now this is a guy who you know he's a man and he has guts but at the same time it's just you know he's in this really precarious position a terrible situation yeah yeah uh, but yeah, it's a really it's a really good movie. Uh, I was glad I finally watched it. I mean, it is one of those classics that you know you have to see. I don't know if I would put it quite like up in my top westerns right now. It's interesting too because there's actually another film which I don't know if it was it wasn't exactly a western from like the 19th century period, but it was made in the 50s. It was this movie called a. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. I I've say heard it's of called. That. It's a movie with Spencer Tracy. It also involves him, like a like he plays a guy who comes to this small town that also has kind of like a lot of fifties communist era paranoia to there, it. There are a lot of actors who took their turn at the western. I mean, you talked about Gregory Peck. There's uh, Kirk Douglas, I think did did he one. did a few. Uh, then Gary Cooper, and the, the surprising one is is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Not like Destry rides again, and like Winchester. Well, the thing uh, with well, the one with Jim, James Stewart to see is a Naked movie called. Spur. Yeah, you've seen that. I've heard of it. it he that's where, where he, he plays goes, a villain. He yeah. He made, well not a villain, but he plays like a bounty hunter. He's like an antihero, I think. Yeah, and he actually is really good in it. I yeah. still haven't seen Winchester seventy three. No, I haven't seen it either. Yeah, but yeah, High Noon. 
If uh, also that song. Yes. That that's that Do that song follows. Take me, oh my darling. It's all he. It always oh, comes when he's walking darling. around. It's almost like he's. Uh, <laughs> He's being followed by a band. <laughs> it's like he's playing his iPod. Oh, shut up, will ya? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and one more thing I wanted to say. Um, he's got his iPod on. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Cooper with earbuds. <laughs> hey, you never know. We could, hey, man, Back to the Future 3, they... Never mind. <laughs> um, they did that kind of shit. Um, well, I wanted to say, though, like, I have to think Sergio Leone watched the hell out of this movie. Like I think that, so. Well, the the times where they cut back to the, the bandits waiting at the train station, they're yeah. kind of just waiting there, and they're very idle, but they're taking their time. But he referenced that in Once Upon a Time in the West. Once Upon a Time in the West, th- I don't so much think that... He, it's, it's a different kind of situation in Once Upon a Time in the West, but it has that feel. I mean, that, Characters it, waiting at a train station, yeah. you know they're bad, you know something's about to go down. I mean, but but every Sergio Leone in the Western has a reference to, it's packed with references. To I don't think I don't think I don't think uh, Sergio Leone so much as watched this a whole bunch of times, but like watched every Western. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, we could use that. He was, he that. was Tarantino before Tarantino. Yeah. Which makes sense that Leone is Tarantino's favorite director. Yeah. Well, that's a good choice. Yeah. All right. So we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we will have our next segment. Hey! 